Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Kari. I'm your host, Kari Feiler. In today's episode, I will be talking to my friend, Evan Maeda. We will cover topics such as election accountability or accountability of elected officials, a book that we're both reading called Alchemical Psychology. We'll talk about God, consciousness, the coronavirus, power as a concept, basic income, the recent election, uh, as well as a note that I can't read. So stay tuned and be surprised. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, I think we're going. Hi, Evan. Hey, Corey. How's it going, dude? I'm great, man. I'm great. Uh, thank you for doing this. And oh, my God. Thank you for having me. This is so nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm excited about it. So let's just roll. I will have given you uh, a little bit of an intro before this. So we are friends and book club buddies, and we're currently right. reading Alchemical Psychology. Mm-hmm. Right for it. Yeah, let's do it. And so you asked me about these questions. Do I believe? And so uh, just for an, for an overview, what we'll do, uh, we'll start off talking about the book, and then we can just roll into whatever topical current issues we want to talk about then hopefully we can also touch on some timeless topics like power and race and things like that and the point is to have a long flowing uh conversation with a lot of meaty meaningful content because i think that's what people come to podcasts for to hear people work through ideas Uh, and that that doesn't that doesn't happen until the second hour to be absolutely honest (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's when the, the the face comes down right when the mask comes down after the first hour you can't nobody can hold it up that long no it's true it's true you gotta wear me out and get my uh jitters out of here so that way we can actually talk honestly same here same here so do i the first question do i believe that everything in life is an essential part of the overall creation uh what do you think of that let me ask you what do you think of that Oh man, um, I hate to put a break on it, but can we go back and talk about just the book in general and like how no, it came no, up no. and all that? No, that's great. I feel that's like great. that's really good context. You yeah, can, um, please do that because uh, you know you know more about it than I do. Yeah, so um, I just happened to find this book through um, a therapist that I had seen trying to get an appointment with them. Things didn't really work out, but they recommended me the book anyways. Um, and it just so happened to have a bit of that Jungian concept of synchronicity with me because. Recently, I had been starting to kind of dive into Carl Jung as a kind of separate interest of mine, and I'd also really kind of taken a deep dive over the summer into a bunch of different crazy, some esoteric concepts, some more stuff that's a bit more grounded, but um, one of the things that I dove through was alchemy, and I thought that if nothing more, it was interesting and at least had a little bit of merit from a philosophical standpoint. So having that under my belt and then getting this book recommended to me by this guy was something that I kind of thought was, okay, maybe a little more significant than the average encounter. And I should probably try to find out a little more about this. And that's when you came to me saying, I want to start this book club. Uh, Maybe you got something you want to read. And I was like, well, shit, here we go. And you had a great open mind about it. So I threw it out there and we talked and said that it was something we wanted to try. And now we're reading it. Um, what do you think thus far? What's your what's your opinion? Where are you and what do you think thus far? So I just finished chapter two. Um, thus far, I have been reading the book, and I've been thinking about saying this, I've been reading the book with this thought in the back of my head or this kind of like mantra of just, 
when is it going to turn to bullshit? Like I kept waiting for the next sentence when he was going to say something so outlandish or so new age woohoo or whatever that I was just going to be able to say this book is absolutely ridiculous. I can't wait to throw it out the window, whatever, right? I was very, very like waiting for that moment just to happen. And the reality is that it threaded the needle really close, but it never actually did. And I'm only in chapter two, so it still has plenty of opportunity to do that. But that's kind of been my opinion of it is that I'm waiting for it to cover that gap between esoteric, philosophical, deep thinking about a greater meaning of life and jumping the gap into something that's new agey, not relevant to what's going on, um, in, a, in a way almost disconnected from reality and like echo chamber type discussion where the, the example that I actually thought of was um, I heard about these guys called breatharians. Okay. I saw it on a, from the subreddit of a mealtime video. Um, and they were people during the nineties who believed that they could live off just light and breathing and the human body didn't need food and water and all that stuff. And it was just some crazy ass new age spiritual, right? Like I was very, there, there's a gap in my opinion between like thinking about the world in a greater sense or thinking about the world in a larger kind of paradigm and jumping the gap into things that are completely unreasonable. And I was really happy that so far in chapter two, the book never jumped into that breatharian. I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but into that kind of category of new age, self-help, crazy bullshit. I, I was really, really happy the book never did that. Um, what did you think about it? Because I feel like you're a bit more logical, hard 90 degree angles than I am. But I don't know. What are your thoughts? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think we probably have different definitions of woohoo because in my in my <laughs> notes, I've got so much woohoo. I use the word woohoo. I don't know, seven times before I said, OK, I'm just going to stop calling this out because uh, I'm being overly negative and I'm just going to start looking for positive stuff. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree, but there's, a, there's like a limit, right? There's we have a different, different, we're using it differently. So I'm using woohoo, you're using woohoo for, yeah, anti-scientific thinking. Uh, thinking that just flies in the face of the scientific method and the, the culture of science and what we've learned over the past 200, 300 years. Um, yeah. And I'm using woohoo as uh, I'm using woohoo. So the the first example that I pointed out was he's making what I think is a is a not I don't want to say dishonest. Uh, if I can find the note, it's in here somewhere. Narrowing is a necessity. Insight. It's not. So he's making ambigu ambiguations that I don't think are. Deeply helpful or meaningful. So he does things where he says, mm. "Okay, the 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 there are four elements: earth, wire, earth, fire, uh, wind, and water. And then the fire is a psychological element, as well as it's the temperature of the body and the passions of of sex. And so I don't think that type of ambiguation of term is helpful. Because uh, mm. what is the you know, we used words, the, the history of words, the genealogy of, of concepts is inter, interwoven and related. And so I think what I thought was, I thought you could take 
some concept and relate it to another that might have been related maybe 50 years ago they share the same root word but now you know that guy i'm thinking of that meme where that guy says you know why is it black because the night is tripping with you or something and he raises <laughs> points his finger at his temple you know what me i'm talking about right why did yeah. they say black people are crazy because the lights in the sky at night the stars at night and so i call that woohoo uh when he's talking about the fire there's a psychology that is fire there's a psychological element that is fire and then there's the temperature of the body and the passions and the heat of passion i don't think that's meaningful rhetoric at all but of course he's a doctor uh, he's a real doctor and he studied young and he's a very very smart man so i don't expect him to go into anti-scientific rhetoric uh, at all i just don't agree with those with those ambiguations well, from even if though it was a doctor and all that stuff, I still was totally ready for that. Um, but on a separate note, I completely agree with you. Um, although I didn't, I completely agree with you in the sense of that labeling that woohoo. I think that's a thousand percent fair. Um, however, I kind of saw that as the purpose of the book, and maybe this is something where the intention that I had in my head in reading this book kind of matters in the way that I'm interpreting it. Mm. Um, when I was reading the book and the reason why the book appealed to me, um, I was looking for this sort of recipe or paradigm that I can put and look at the world through, put the world into and look at the world through. Um, I think that anybody that is, looks at the world purely rationally is going to be missing out on a little bit of what the reality experience has to offer. And I have this drive to want to bring everything into this all-encompassing sort of paradigm that I can have everything under one umbrella. And that I've found for me personally to be really, really difficult. So I kind of saw this as an opportunity to... Sounds like a helicopter circling behind me. Sorry about that. Um, uh... I really saw this book as an opportunity to kind of like find a paradigm that I could put everything in my life under. Mm. So even though things aren't going to be perfect, even though things aren't going to fit well, calling the passion of sex fire and associating that as one ingredient of a recipe, that's a paradigm that I can be kind of a little more lenient of and be okay with because its purpose is not to reproduce accuracy, but rather to point in a general direction. And while I agree that that kind of ambiguity isn't really helpful from the sense of a constructive point of view, I do really think that it's kind of helpful in the sense of just putting things in a more organized worldview. I get that, only that I would call that disorganization. I wouldn't call that organization. And so I actually wrote down uh, my reaction. It's, it's the quote is, it's on page eight. And then... Let me see. Page eight. And then the words are the only element. I'm not going to find the quote. But uh, wait, body fire. The only Here it is. The only element that was not easily discerned was fire. Where might I find fire in myself? I could easily locate earth, water, and air in my body, but not fire. To find it, I had to go to the interior of my body and imagination. Fever is the result of high body temperature. And at that point, I stopped copying and I said, this, amb this ambiguation between metaphor and objective truth is not helpful. So that's the distinction. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's what I call organization, is when we say, okay, this is metaphor. 
and this is objectively true. And we know that metaphor, uh, the boy that cries wolf, right? This is a story. This is a moral or, or God building the earth in seven days. It's metaphorical seven days. That's fine. And metaphor can appear to be and have the shape of objective truth. But when authors today conflate actual objective truth, like the temperature of the body with the fire of the psyche, that's not helpful anymore. <laughs> I would argue. No, you're absolutely yeah. right, actually. You're absolutely right. And you actually are kind of exposing a bias that I always had, which is that when when you read that quote back to me, I kind of disagree with him. I'm like, what do you mean? Like the fire of passion. Like that's always been the way that I've kind of in my head visualized that sort of aspect of the human character. And that was totally a bias that I had going into it. So maybe the experiences that I had as a kid and the biases that I've grown up with have kind of made me more predisposed to be receptive to these kinds of concepts. Because you're absolutely right. That sort of desertion, or sorry, not desertion, the sort of ambiguation, I hope that's the right word, ambiguation of objective truth and you know metaphorical kind of reasoning you're totally right they shouldn't be mixed that now i want to just say that for sure i recognize that i'm coming from science right so i'm coming from the an organization that is rigid i mean it's as rigid as they come right basic science is uh prides itself on being very strict and interpreted very strictly along a chemical and an atomic and molecular level. And so there's no room for any sort of thinking like this. And that's where my worldview is based on. My worldview is based on uh, the collections of the objective, sci objective scientific industry around the world. And so for me, I call this an ambiguation. But if you're coming from no metaphor, if you have no religious backdrop, if you have no scientific, if, if you're kind of looking to say, because I think what you, just knowing you personally, you are very curious and interested with an open mind about all the different ways that people think. So I think you come into each understanding blank. You say, how, do you, you say, how does this person build the world? Let me understand that fully, not even compare, comparing it. You're much better at that than I am. <laughs> mm, I, well, I, I do that. not do that. I say, I say, how does this person think compared to what I think already? That, that's the way I approach every text these days i see that yeah i see that no you i mean you really make me think about this too because i did approach this pretty blankly and even the way you said that i kind of did really consider myself somebody that was a bit more scientifically kind of minded but i think what happened was my biases allowed me to view this as somewhat or remotely or within principle scientific and i think part of that is because um when i studied psych in school i really kind of got the feeling that psychology and i I only feel like time has reinforced this further. Hope it's not biased, but it has um, reinforced further that psychology is extremely primitive in terms of a science. Um, one of the cool things that I learned recently was that a lot of the landmark studies like the Ashline experiment or the Milgram study or the Zimbardo prison experiment or trying to think of the other one uh there's a bunch of studies that are like this that are used especially in social social psychology to talk about trends that people have and those have become aligned with institutions those have become integrated into textbooks those have become what we spew as our bread and butter uh what's the word like canon gospel of the way people behave mm. there's now a realization that I only way to, the only way to not explain this realization is to give an example. I hate to go through another tangent, but... Tangent away, sudden, my friend. Tangent let's do away. It. 
that's why we have two or three hours, right? That's right. <laughs> so there was a study done um, in social psychology where they followed students through their first year, if I remember correctly, their first year of school living in dormitories away from home. Um, and they found that the people that you were around were the people that you were most likely to make friends with. Mm. So they looked at the people who became friends. They looked at their proximity door to door and found that the closer you were, the more likely you were to make friends. So we began to, we, I say people studying social psychology, began to teach that as the people that you're around, the people like uh, who become familiar, those are the things that we like. So we like familiarity, blah, 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 blah perfectly reasonable however they're also starting to look back at the data and realize that the people they were most likely to make enemies with were also the people closer so the same logic that was being used to explain as to why somebody was more likable was because they lived closer to me was also the same logic that the data was pointing to for the reason as to why somebody was my enemy mm. was because they lived closer to me and i had more interactions with them mm. ergo more negativity blah 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 so knowing things like this about psychology, I really genuinely feel in my heart that it is an extremely primitive type of uh, uh, science further compounded by the either ineffectiveness or um, possible like detrimental side effects or difficulty with pinning down things like medication for treatment or even diagnosing people like accurately. All of that is done so our accuracy with within all of that data is is not the best compared to other sciences like physics or something like that right like we don't understand how to completely diagnose the long-term effects of um trauma on the brain and how it manifests in different kinds of uh, mental illnesses, everything from like bipolar disorder, whatever like that, right? We don't have the data to perfectly explain that. We can get close or we can do somewhat well, but we don't have the data to perfectly explain that. But we can pretty accurately explain quantum energy level states, or at least what we think pretty accurately explain the math behind the way that black holes function. And we don't have that same kind of mathematical understanding in psychology. And so for that, going back to our original point about alchemical psychology, I really do see this book as almost as valid as any other kind of scientific text when it comes to understanding psychology. I think that like organizing psychology under a philosophy that is metaphoric and not necessarily tangible to reality um, while I can see that it's not necessarily as useful, I do kind of find it useful as well because it allows for a different method of studying and understanding the way that emotions and thoughts play within the human mind of the human experience. So I really do think that that kind of gray area leaves you, leaves you open to that. No, I, uh, I get that. I get that. I, I think that's a astute insight. You're actually reminding me of why I didn't go into social studies uh, when I started when I was 18 and trying to think about what I wanted to do in undergraduate because I looked at society and I looked at nations and, and I looked at I considered population dynamics and I said there's no way there's no way we can from such a high level make any sort of meaningful inference or understanding about what's happening in society. So there's just too many variables, right? This is what I said to myself mm -hmm. as an 18-year-old. And then I decided against psychology for the same reason. 
I said, look, you're looking at a brain, but a brain is, there's so much going on. And when I say I hurt, it's not the same as when you say you hurt. And when I say I have a pain from a level from 7 out of 10, it's not the same as when you say it. When I say I'm depressed, it's not the same as when you say it. When I say I'm overjoyed, it's not the same as when she says it, right? It's the, the way, even though we use the same word, the actual subjective experiences, we can't directly compare them, even when we're using the same word. And so I said, so for, true. I said for that reason, and I'm not going to go psychology. There's That's really, I, I need to go even lower. And I got all the way down to the cellular level. Uh, and the guy, so I did fMRI for a bit, um, but then that didn't work out. And then I went down to the cellular level. And even my, and I mentioned this to my would-be advisor. And I said, I'm really interested in digging down and getting some 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 tangible kind of discrete results, right? I, I want to know if A touches B, does C happen? Uh, and he said, well, we're at the level of the cell, at the cell, and there's still ambiguity. <laughs> so how much how much ambiguity are you comfortable with? And I said, well, you know, the cell's fine, I guess. Yeah. That's, the cell's fine. Yeah. I mean, unless you're going to go down and do theoretical quantum physics, that's about as, as, uh, as low as it gets in that direction. Uh, no, you're no, right. You're, you're so... absolutely right. In, in studying the science... In studying the science or in creating a science and making it more robust a science of psychology, the more scientific paradigms and structures we can use, like alchemy, the better. Uh, that way we can refine those meanings. That way we can get closer to actually meaning the same thing when I say I'm feeling uh, morose and you say you're feeling morose. Well, we can actually maybe make that even more granular and get an even better understanding and alchemical alchemical psychology could help in that regard. Oh, that's so interesting that you started relating it to interpersonal relationships. Cause I really see this as like deeply personal and relevant to the individual, right? Mm. Like the individual is going to take um, their experience and digest it into this alchemical paradigm. Mm. And then from there, they'll like, it's, I'm, I'm assuming just because of the titles and, of the chapters that there's going to be recipes later in the book by which you combine these alchemical ingredients and if you combine these ingredients in a certain way you're going to produce a certain results within yourself so it's funny that you actually took it on an interpersonal level and maybe that's why i saw this as a bit more scientific because i felt like this was very strictly within the individual hmm. this this in my opinion has no purpose and no value when it comes to an interpersonal relationship. It merely has relevance to your own personal experience and the way that you view that, in my opinion. Well, even even bettering yourself has some value in an interpersonal relationship because if you make yourself better, then by extension and indirect, you'll make all your relationships better. I would think. That's very true. Yeah, you're right. That is kind of simplistic to say that it's only individual. We are connected. We're all star stuff. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally, totally. Star stuff, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm right there. So you want to go at these questions? Yeah, let's. Now that we okay. kind of dove through it a little more, let's. Because so I really want to hear your opinion on them, too. The first is, do I believe that everything in life is an essential part of the overall creation? Uh, and so my first reaction to that was, essential for what? Because I feel like you can't just say, is this essential well, I mean, what are we doing? Are we building a tent? Or are we building a car? Or are we breaking a door down? It, it, it depends on what we're doing, right? So we can't just ask, 
you know, and then he says is an essential part of the overall creation. So when I read that, I thought, okay, are we talking about the presence of an atom in a certain position in the planet? Are we talking about Joan, John hitting his wife Joan or John not hitting his wife? What are, you know, I, I'm just not clear on what we're talking about there. Uh, and so I had to answer that question with a question. Essential for what? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's kind of pointing to... Oh my god, I'm going to sound like such a reductionist, but literally everything. Like, is John's wife, is John hitting his wife? Is that Adam being in that position? Is that rock necessary to you being able to fix your car in life? And is that part of necessary? You know what I mean? Like, I think it's sort of. But necessary for what? I think it's necessary. Well, I think it's the way it states the question necessary part of the overall creation. So if you look at everything not necessarily as a creation, but if you just look at everything as a oneness, it are all parts of the entity necessary to make the whole. I think that's maybe a better way of saying that. I'm still lost on that. I'm still lost on that because it feels like it's making an assumption. It feels like it's assuming we understand something about the, the existence of the physical universe that we don't. Uh, it feels like it's assuming that we know something about overall creation. All we, as far as I'm concerned, all we know about overall creation is that it's here. <laughs> That's it. That's all we know yeah. about it. It's here. <laughs> I can't here. tell you what it's for. I can't tell you where it's from. But it's not asking you to tell it a purpose. It's asking you if all parts of the creation are necessary to the creation. How itself. would I know? Well, it's not asking if you know. It says, do I believe? Do I believe that everything is an essential part I feel like he's sneaking something in with that, and so I'm very. I think it's I think it's a question that's meant to test what beliefs you already hold going into it, mm. and if you were able to answer that question with an affirmative, then it shows one of two things. It shows uh, two things. One, it shows that you already have a certain number of biases or paradigms that you're willing to subscribe to going into this. Mm. And two, that you are willing to follow using those biases and paradigms, jump the bridge that he's asking you to jump and meet him on the other side with a question like this. I really do think that it's a question meant to test in the sense of like litmus test, not like, you know, you have a quiz and here's your grade, uh, just litmus test whether or not a person will be receptive to this, which is why I actually thought it was a good question to pose to you, because depending on how you respond to them would really kind of speak to your opinions about the way you see the world. Just as you were saying, you feel like he's trying to sneak something towards you from the sense of change your mind, I think he's trying to sneak something towards you in the sense of asking if you believe all of these other things in addition to a question being asked. I think I follow you. I think I follow you. And I, and I agree. He's asking it. I think he's asking it to see, you know, I, he could have maybe phrased it this way. Do you believe there is a purpose to everything that exists in creation? All right. I, I, I feel like that would be a more straight ver, straightforward version of this question. Uh, no, because I think purpose is trying to say A plus B equals C. And the purpose would be to equal C by mixing A and B. I think the question is specifically asking, is the equation whole with A plus B and because all parts of A and B are necessary? Maybe not whole. That's not the right word. Um, is the equation by itself... Uh, are the are the parts of the equation essential to the equation itself, regardless of whatever the outcome is? Are the components of the equation, all components of it, essential to the equation itself? Yes, yes, exactly. And the word essential... 
contains the concept of purpose inside of it. Essential for a purpose. Maybe. Well, no, because you can say that essential would simply be... What if the purpose is just to exist and therefore it's already doing that, right? Like, you may not need to find a deeper purpose other than the purpose you already know that it's serving, which is existing. So... You, because you're saying that you're trying to find a purpose in there, I think that we can just inject a purpose for the sake of feeling that need for one. And if we inject the purpose of existing, then the question is, do we believe that everything in life is essential for the purpose of existing, for the purpose of creation to exist? Okay, well, if, we, if, we, if I say that, then I'm going to say part... I mean, I, I'm I'm so hung up on essential because I look at the um, I look at the universe as something that is unfolding, and although although I think mathematically you could say that time is linear, that the future has happened, and and this is kind of what the math points to. Uh, we don't experience mm-hmm. that way, right? We experience it from we experience it as progression that the past has happened and the future has yet to happen, and we're here in the moment uh, making. Uh, past of the future right and so i think that asking if everything is an essential part of the overall thing is like asking are the results of this chemical interaction an essential part of the reaction yes right what what happens at the end of the reaction are an essential part of it uh yeah, so you're kind of answering the question by saying, well, duh, of course it is, because none of it would be here without the components that it has. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I, I still feel like I have a, a mouthful of bad mayonnaise, but I guess that's, uh, <laughs> that's fine. So well, because the- that's kind of how, how I wanted to answer. That's kind of how I answered it, was basically saying that, well, it's all here, and, you know, the what is it, the three laws of, is it two laws or three laws of thermodynamics, right? Matter is neither created nor destroyed. Um, uh, energy you can is call it the four energy. fundamental forces. I go I go back to that quite often. Yeah, there you go, right? Like, so all of those are supposed to interplay with each other. So they if to. they're, and they all have been interplaying to the point of creating what we have now. So if you would have removed an element from that, would we not have the same thing that we have now? I think that, yeah, I can see feeling like you have a mouth of bad mayonnaise, but I think that the question is a little bit simpler maybe than than we're digging into. Could be, could be. Uh, question two, do I believe that everything, no matter how chaotic, simple, or complex, is part of the stuff that I need to bring harmony into my life? And I answered... This question, this question was literally the question that made me pick up the phone to text you, by the way, but mm. go on. <laughs> okay, so you have... So my short answer is no. Uh, and But that hinges on the the part of the question that is I the harmony into my life, right? And then the, it hinges on everything compared with my life. My life will not interact with everything. There's plenty of stuff going on in Bangladesh right now that will not make it to me by the time I kick the bucket uh, in, in a meaningful way. It won't, you know, and maybe maybe in 20 years I'll walk past somebody who's only in America because of this thing that's happening in Bangladesh. But or maybe I'll meet somebody. I don't know. But even mm-hmm. even if that happens, I got I have to have the feeling that 90 percent of what happens during my life doesn't ever actually get to me. 
right? So this is this is the old they used to use this phrase, uh, well, you know, the price of tea in China, right? Saying that there's some things that even though you can imagine them and they are actually happening, they don't have relevance on your life. And so I would go think that the world is so vast. I mean, we're talking about 7 billion people right now. Uh, and over the course of 100 years, uh, I really don't see, I really don't see more than half of it uh, ever actually, I mean, no, I only see less than half of it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. actually mattering to me during my life. Uh, there have to be a lot of, I mean, that's, of course, of course, these are going to be small things. Uh, the who you know, Duterte in the Philippines and and Xi Jinping and global politics that's going to affect me, right? So that it's a, it's a global economy. But I'm talking about those people currently in their village, uh, in remote China, Kazakhstan, right? And what's happening in brother cheats on wife and brother cheats with wife on you know th- these sorts of things. That's not that's not going to matter matter to me. So that's how I answer that question. And the, do I believe that everything? Is part of the stuff I need? No, no, most of it is not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. that's really that's fair, dude. You're, that's really, really fair. I wanted to, when I said yes to the question, what I realized is I, I asked myself the question that I thought it was trying to ask and say yes to that. Mm. But looking at the question just purely objectively, the way you did, you're absolutely right. I completely agree with you. What did you? Uh, how did you read it? I kind of took it as. Again, the book is taking everything from uh, the passion of sex to the ferocity of anger, whatever, right? And it's just combining them into the concept of psychological fire. And to me, the book is asking if you take that same grouping and clumping and organization of the world in a more conceptual, abstract way, no matter how simple or complex those abstractions are are they part of the stuff that you need to bring harmony to your life i would say yes to that because i kind of think that the more experiences that we can have as individuals or the more sort of different ways that we can look at the world or the more variety essentially that we are given in terms of ways to think um i think that that is nothing but good and generally when i have learned the most in my life has been when i have learned a different perspective that i never would have thought of before so i guess in a roundabout way i kind of saw the book as asking are all perspectives and concepts no matter how you know simple or complex essential to the harmony of your life and yes but the reality is that there's no reason for me to have taken it that way at all. That's not what the question was asking. No, I think you. I think you're much more keyed in on the the spirit in which this guy wrote the book than I am. <laughs> I yeah, think, yeah, I think but, the way. But, he... but that's what I was saying about my biases, right? Is that like I already have these biases that allow me to be more like predispositioned to be accepting of the spirit by which he's trying to write it. Yeah, I wouldn't even call it a bias. I th- I would just call it an understanding. Uh, you have a better understanding of where he's coming from. Uh, than I do, and I'm learning. So reading the question that way, okay, do I believe that everything in my mind now and past, no matter how chaotic, simple, or complex, is part of the stuff? Of course, right? Yeah. But that's yeah, a silent. Exactly. That's a yeah. silent part of the question that I didn't read. I read everything in the world, <laughs> not everything Which in you- my psyche. 
Yeah, which is why it's a really valid criticism, because if you're trying to really prompt people to look introspectively, if you're trying to prompt people to have a paradigm shift by which you reorganize your interaction with daily reality, you got to be more specific than that. Like, I understand, like, getting people who are keyed into the spirit of it and just being able to follow that. But if you're trying to be more effective and reach more people, you've got to be able to translate that spirit in writing. It shouldn't be something that has to be inferred. Yep, yep, no, no, I agree, I agree. Uh, You want to go to the third one? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Do I believe that everything changes, regardless of temporary setbacks, into ever more refined expressions of nature? Uh, I wrote, depends on what you mean by refined. Oh, Kari, I love you, dude. I knew you were going to be everything was. Well, yeah. I mean, depends. Yep. But I mean, if you think about I knew everything was going to go that way. That's right, how cool. it goes. That's how I think. Let, That's how I let think. Let me hear it, dude. This is what I want to hear. Tell me. Tell so me. Tell it, me. It depends on what you mean by refined. So I do believe that everything changes, um, let's say, regardless of temporary setbacks, into into ever more, let's call them late stage expressions of nature. Uh, I believe that we are kind of riding on a rail of experience and that it began, what, I don't know, 15 billion years ago, three and a half billion years ago? How old is the visible universe? I don't know. Some large number began some long, long time ago. Uh, and here we are at this point and it'll go on for much, much longer. And here we are on the roller coaster uh, and it's on a rail i view time as really a rail that a roller coaster is on and so when you talk about nature changing which is the only constant is change then mm-hmm. i just call them ever more late stage uh as far as ref- are they refined is it refined i mean you can i can imagine I can imagine 1945 Germany not being interpreted as a refined version of 1925 Germany. They wouldn't say that's a more and more refined expression. Uh, they would say mm. that's a worse expression. That was a horrible expression. Uh, definitely not refined. But now, having talked to you, which I'm so grateful to talk to you, I'm going to read this question a little bit differently. Do I believe that everything in my psyche, past, now and past, changes regardless of temporary setback, into ever more refined. Okay, now my answer to this is no, uh, because I can devolve into psychosis. I can become a crazy person. Uh, I, can become, I can become a monster. I can, I can have my heart broken. Uh, I can have my job loss, and I can have an ser- unfortunate series of events that make me become the worst version of myself. Um, so it's, I think it's not safe to assume that setbacks are temporary. I, I would say that if the setbacks are temporary, then if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Uh, but it's possible to step into a pile of muck that you don't get out of psychologically. So that'd be how I respond. If we can remove the temporary setbacks portion, if we can ignore a small part of the question in terrible scientific form, I kind of want to ask you the question about like the value the inherent value that you're associating with refined because you're talking about diving into a possible, you know, monster who is the worst possible version of yourself. Couldn't that technically be refined, just refined down to the purest evil or refined down to the purest chaos or like refined, I think doesn't necessarily have to mean 
although the temporary setback, that's why I said ignore the temporary setback portion because it kind of contradicts what I'm about to say, but refine doesn't necessarily have to mean moving up in some sort of value ladder. It can be moving in any other way, but it just in a more moving towards purity, whatever that purity may be, pure evil, pure good, pure, like whatever it is, it's just moving towards that sort of purity, not a goodness, godliness, kindness, wonderful things in the world kind of refined or purity. I follow you. I follow you. You're saying, um, you know, he's got this, this more, he's got a bit of a moral component in the way he's using refined because he's talking about temporary setbacks, which we see as a negative right. thing. And so he's, right. he's inserting the idea of refined having a positive connotation in this question. But if we remove that, then we can have refined refer to the potentiality of a thing. So when you're zero, age zero and age one and age two, you're full of potential. You can be this infinite number of types of humans. But by the time you're 36, that list is much, much shorter of things that you can be. And so that's a way of, of you can you can refer to that as a refinement, the way a the way a tip on a spear or on something becomes more refined towards that sharp point, right? It becomes less of a thing. And so you become you become less potential. You have less Less potential as you go forward, uh, and you can, if you were to refer to that as refinement. But even then, um, we have material that that begins disparate, collapses into a star, explodes, and then becomes a bunch of different stars, and becomes a planet at some point. Well, our planet was once actually a bunch of gas, uh, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. it's not. And it's you could argue that this planet Earth has more potential. Because it has these biological comp uh, these biological processes on it, than yep. the gas that it was that it once was uh, on its own, and so we've actually gone in the opposite direction of of that type of refinement, or even or even the the type of refinement if we put the setbacks back in. Uh, so I, I I don't think so. I no, think so. I think you're 100 percent right. This is actually the question that I felt was like worded probably the worst because temporary setbacks, like you said, it you know introduces some kind of value although i don't think necessarily has to i think that you can just say if you're trying to be the most refined yourself to be the most evil person as possible mm -hmm. you can still have a setback towards being that evil person right like it's it all becomes about the relative view by which you're looking at it like a vector right so i really see that but i also really really agree with you that i don't really i don't really say yes to this question because i think it's just really poorly asked i think mm. if i ask the question that it's trying to ask mm. i would say yes what do you think it's trying to ask hmm do i believe that everything changes regardless of temporary setbacks into an ever more defined expression of nature mm. i think that would have been a much better way to say it mm. because refine has this implication that it is removing impurities like you said or it has some sort of like value associated with it and combining it with temporary setbacks like if he was just going for the pure relativistic sense of your down is my up and so i'm going to count it totally different i can i can subscribe to that if he uses defined as in um like separating itself because i think your example of planets or a star explodes forms a bunch of other stars those explode eventually forms into a planet I mean, that planet became more defined from the ambiguous gas, right? I can mm -hmm. totally subscribe to something like that. I just don't think that refined and setbacks and all that really introduces that same question. So because of that, I have to say no. And I think we ag would agree that this question contains an assumption. 
Uh, when you ask, yes. do you believe all the questions do all the questions? Well, this do. entire this entire book does really like you were talking about. The spirit of the book is carrying with it some assumptions. Yeah, yeah, and I guess you know, and, and science does as well. But the assumption in this question seems to be that do I believe that everything is getting better uh, in nature? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no, over the long time scale, and I do. Although I do believe that society is getting better in the longer time scale than we often think. Uh, I think that humans in the year, let's say 700,000 are going to be better humans than we are now. Uh, but I don't think that's guaranteed. I don't think that's inherent in nature in any way. I just think that's, I just think that's a logical projection from the way that we've behaved thus far. If we survive that far, uh, <laughs> if we kill ourselves, obviously that's wrong, but if we survive to 700,000, I think we'll be pretty awesome. Uh, but that's I mean, not... it's wrong for it's wrong for us. But you know, I want to hit the blend and come in here with my Terrence McKenna love and say that if Terrence McKenna, Terrence McKenna had this theory that nature was simply seeking novelty, and I can actually kind of see as maybe that being nature's purpose. Uh, I'm not going to say I'd sit here and argue and defend that to my grave or anything like that. Like I'm not going to say that that's what mm-hmm. it actually is, mm-hmm. but I could see that being like a legitimate kind of reasoning or hypothesis. If that's the hypothesis, I mean, I I completely agree. Like, that's exactly what this question is asking, is that is nature doing its purpose continuously? And yeah, it is. It's constantly producing more novelty, and it's doing a fantastic job of that. Yeah, yeah, and I I agree on that. I sometimes think about about reality uh, and the components of reality, and specifically the biological components. Components, but also maybe the conceptual components as an ever expanding sphere uh, and sh- ever expanding shells. And so as the shell gets bigger, there's more and more surface area for these organisms, people or concepts to uh, cover. And therefore, even and as the shell gets bigger, even though ideas that once began in close relations are now getting further and further apart, because that's part of the function of an expanding sphere. And I think that uh nature and so you can you can kind of see the each point being refined to use his word because it's becoming smaller and smaller uh in relation to the surface of the sphere even though it was once a quarter of the surface now as the sphere gets a thousand times larger it's it's a tiny tiny little speck it doesn't represent nearly Mm -hmm. as much as it once did because now there's so much more uh, that's present to account for on the surface and so is nature expanding is it growing is it becoming more rich and more diverse and and uh, in that way and that's so why in that way i would agree uh, i think that spirit's in the question somewhere and i would agree with yeah that. i think so too yeah and i would agree and say yes right i think you kind of way better vocalized what i was the question that i was originally agreeing to but that's not the question that he asked in the book that's right the so yes. we're <laughs> picking on cavalli that... for his language Hey, that's fair. I mean, you, you won the road it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the next question. Do I believe that everything holds a mystery that I desire to know? Uh, Fuck I, yeah. Yeah, I just wrote yes. Yeah, it's all there. It's 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 in every it's in every component, right? Uh, God is everything or he's nothing. That's the way I look at that. Ooh, I like that. Oh, shit. I've never heard that before. What? Whoa. God is everything or he's nothing? Whoa, dude. You've never heard that? Hold on. I've never heard what that. What year is this? Are you in California? Am I living under a rock? I yeah. don't know, dude. Jeez. Yeah. yeah, I've never... That's really good. Well, because I was just talking to... Um, uh, 
I was just talking to a buddy of mine about it, and he's pretty religious, pretty firmly believes in God. He's uh, he's the coolest dude. He told me that he had this experience where he was trying to find himself. He wasn't really, like, when he was a kid, he was trying to find himself. And so he went out to this beach on um, the island. I don't remember which. He lived, used to live in Hawaii at the time. So he went out to this beach. Um, long story short, he gets hit with this huge hurricane, one of the first hurricanes that Hawaii had experienced in like 40 or 50 years or something like that, the way he tells it. And he was in this little shelter that he had made by himself, and he was basically hiding from the storm, and everything was raging around him. And he was kind of scared, obviously, right? And he said that at that time, he felt, when it was most chaotic and scary, he felt touched, he felt this stillness, and he heard God's voice, or Jesus' voice. This is him saying this. He heard Jesus' voice saying, this isn't your time. I have bigger plans for you. The next day, he knew exactly he wanted to be like a doctor or whatever he ended up being. Moved on with his life and became a chiropractor, right? That was his calling. That was his experience. He knows for a fact that 100% that there is a God, and that's his belief. Him and I were talking about you know, our personal experiences and what we see God as, and I kind of told him that I really thought that humanity could find God and inevitably there was always going to be the god of the gaps that we were going to have to keep exploring but i thought that eventually we could find out so much about those gaps that we would just get to know god and i always saw getting to know god as once you've dove deep enough into this gap and found the final kernel at the bottom that's where you'll find god but what you just said was the left side of the gap is god the right side of the gap is god the first kernel that you found is god the second kernel that you found is god and all the way down through that gap until you get down to the very bottom that's going to be god too and that's a really interesting concept because then it's not necessarily that humans are trying to find a way to know god it's simply humans knowing that god is already there which is what comes into faith which i guess i kind of plopped out my whole argument there because that's basically faith right that's that's what people live by so well yeah, it's, maybe i'm just you know it's the way that people it's the way that people define it and so i don't think if you it's it's kind of like the what we said what i said earlier about the emotions and even though we use the same word we're actually talking about different things different states mm -hmm. of being i think mm -hmm. god is a similar mm -hmm. thing and so when you talk to somebody and you say hey um, do you believe in God? What do you think God is? They got to give you their answer. Uh, and there just might be 7.3 billion versions uh, of that understanding. And so oh, damn. that's just, damn. you know, it's just, I, I was raised in a Christian Protestant uh, family and, you know, for them, it was kind of run of the mill. Yeah. God is, God is everything or is nothing. And with that was for me, when I was a kid, that was an encouragement to believe. That was encouragement to say, don't just walk out there not believing, believe in this, right? Because this is the better thing. Uh, and it was actually that question that, and this is a tangent, but I guess we can tangent. Uh, it was actually that question that struck me in my early 20s that made me walk away from a, a spiritual but not religious type of <laughs> group that I was hanging out with. Uh, sure. And it was the question of, you know what? God is everything or he's nothing. If he's everything, then that means he's here, uh, you, you know, to use the he pronoun. Uh, that means he's here. And so he should be in my phone and in my keys and in the, you know, metal and in the plastic and in, in, the, he's, in all this. Right. And so he should there should be some evidence as we look down uh, towards the molecules that make up our, our bodies and our things. And we should find them there. Uh, and so I did a little bit of investigation into little bit of education and about physics and whatnot and it seems that those systems 
are still repeatable, still reliable, still more or less predictable uh, at those levels. But of course, QED gets very screwy. Uh, and so I've pushed the concept of God back beyond that, right? Back beyond QED, beyond the, the what, what was it? I, I don't know what the theory is called, but I read somewhere that the, they did an experiment and they said that the universe is actually discrete. It was a question of whether space, space-time is discrete or whether it's continuous. Uh, and these researchers said that it's actually discrete, that the smallest unit of time is 10 to the negative 43 seconds, that the smallest unit of distance is 10 to the negative 35 meters, and so the universe that we're living in has a frame rate as of, of about 10 to the 43 meters, I, I mean 10 to the 43 frames a second, uh, and that's, that's what we're living through, and so, I, and I, I guess... I guess about the question of is God everything or nothing, that drove me into becoming more scientifically literate. And becoming scientifically literate was what allowed me to be introduced to and take seriously simulation theory, or at least understand simulation theory uh, as a true world theory. That was a couple of years ago. So it's a wonderful question. Uh, it's a wonderful question to send you down an inquisitive road. And uh, I actually like, I don't know if you're familiar with Marcus Aurelius, but his definition. Oh my God, um, love him. Okay, so Marcus Aurelius is the way he uses the kingdom of God and meditations, that's what I carry with me. Uh, and he's a pre, he's pre-Christian, right? So here's someone whose concept of the kingdom of God can't be the one that I learned as a kid. Right. Uh, so for him, the kingdom of God was within you, that which was within you. And as long as you're seeking, as long as you're looking internally, and as long as you're adventuring inwardly, and you make that a purpose that you carry consciously, that you, you make that part of your part of your sacrifice, part of your pain, part of your effort of moving inward and, and getting better at going inward and going deeper inward, then seek ye first the kingdom of God. And that's where it is. So that's wow. what I carry around today. That's some good shit, dude. That's wow. Yeah, you really got me thinking there. Damn. I'm How does that what man. do you what do you think? Um I mean you, I guess you said what you think. Yeah, I mean it's kind of what it comes down to of where I originally defined God being at, and so like you said, the concept of God being everywhere really changes the way you look at the do world. Do you th- do you subscribe to a interventionist God? Do you think there's a God that listens to prayers and sometimes intervenes and sometimes doesn't? Sometimes save people from getting hit by cars and sometimes doesn't. Well, that's the context that I was going to say about the way I saw God from my bringing because my upbringing was catholic so mm. you know god was an entity by which you sent your prayers to and yeah like you said into in, uh, interventionalists so it was a hearing god is defined as everywhere or nowhere and that dichotomy being placed like that very specifically i hope i used the word dichotomy correctly there but so. that you know kind of options being placed there very specifically in that way that's a, that's a i really made me think there well i'm, ha- you, I'm happy to regurgitate things that i've heard <laughs> Dude, well, I mean, it's so crazy, right? Like, I grew up Catholic, and of course, you're taught that, like, you know, the world is God's creation, and that, you know, He is omnip- uh, omnipresent, and what's the word when you're uh, all-knowing? Omniscient. Omniscient, thank you. God is omniscient and omnipresent, but it didn't translate to being everything as well. Even though I was raised in the understanding of God is everywhere and God is knowing everything, I didn't quite translate that to God also being being everything as well or nothing and i just don't know why i've never made that jump despite you know all the catholic upbringing that i have i guess i was too busy feeling guilty that's what it'll do from what i hear (laughs) okay so the final question then final question do i believe that i can adapt my life to these beliefs and expect living tangible results Uh, i wrote of course 
but the methods by which results are acquired remain in question. So when you ask, do I believe that I can adapt my life to these beliefs and expect living tangible results? Yes, but they might not come to you the way you initially think. Uh, it might not be that, oh, I'm going, because when I read this, what I imagine, uh, I don't know if it's some cartoon version of a person, but I imagine some person saying, oh, I'll just go through door A and I'll get result A, and then I'll go down path B and I'll get result B and skip down the road, right? Uh, but of course, that isn't the way life works. Um, mm. So if you adapt your life to these beliefs, then... I mean, should you expect results? I don't even know that now that I'm reading it and thinking about it again, I don't even know that you should even expect results. Um, you just got to go, man. Uh, I, I've been leaning a lot on Elon Musk's stare into the abyss and eat glass uh, <laughs> phrase. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot because uh, I've been finding myself feeling as if I'm staring into the abyss uh, more yeah. and more these days. And you just got to keep going, man. You just got to keep doing what you're doing and, and keep eating that glass and it sucks. But, uh, but that's, I mean, the choice is to stop, right? If the, if the, the choice you have, because time is moving forward. Uh, so your body's aging, your telomeres are shortening as, so you can either stop or you can keep going. That's it. But if you, but, but choosing to, to lay down is a choice. Uh, that's not one that I make. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, I think I would, agree also with your answer but on the interpretation because again i took the i took it at the spirit by which it was intended not by the way the question was asked mm. and i guess now that i'm like reading the question again i don't necessarily think that the spirit and the way it was asked are that different do i believe that i can adapt my life to these beliefs and expect living tangible results <laughs> yeah i don't know because again this book is that last question is kind of uh asking the question by which i already felt like i had said yes to going into this book i said earlier that i went into this book kind of seeing it as a way to digest the world under a certain paradigm and that digestion was going to help it sit better with you and you can better understand it and you know move better through reality blah 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 so do I believe that taking all of reality in and organizing it in a way that can be helpful will produce tangible results? Absolutely. A thousand percent. Yes. I would see that as like almost borderline self-evident and kind of a dumb question to throw out there because a no answer to that question would, in my opinion, have rejected your purpose for reading the entire forward and first chapter. So um, again, that's the way that I think the spirit of the question was, but also, it's, I don't think it was the way that it was really written down or came across. I, th I imagine somebody reading this book and then getting to this question and going, do I believe that I can adapt my life to these beliefs and expect living tangible results? Nah, they close the book, walk away, go to something <laughs> yeah, else. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> nah, I mean. actually like, I don't, so. Cavalli, like, what are you doing here, dude? Like, maybe you're just putting your final, like, litmus test in. Do you know what, actually? I think that's what it was. I, I shouldn't be saying, what are you doing here, dude? Because I feel like I know. And again, it's the reason why I texted you. I feel like these questions are a great summary of the biases and the paradigm and the worldview that you already have to subscribe to in order to proceed through. And you just have to do this final gate check to make sure that everything's okay before you continue on your flight. I really do think that that's what these questions are. And so 
it's the reason why I wanted to talk to you about them because they are a good, as much as they are a good litmus test about the person who's going to be engaging in the discussion, it's also a really, really good way for the book to be able to reveal the paradigm by which it's going to operate under and whether or not you can subscribe to that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, even though there's a lot of, a lot of what I, let's call it, Let's call it gooey phraseology rather than rather than woohoo because it's not exactly it's not woohoo, uh, but it's by by certain definitions, but it's certainly gooey phraseology, very kind of sticky, uh, ambiguous phraseology. He has mm-hmm. a lot of that, but I am grateful to be introduced to Young, uh, a couple of quotes because I've never read Young. Uh, I I know of him, uh, the Swiss Swiss psychologist, but I don't, but I've never read his work. Uh, I just know he's he's a smart guy and psychologists like him. But there was a quote, if I can find it, I don't, I forget how many pages it back was. No, uh, here it is. So this is a quote from Young. The way is not without, and this is in the chapter at the threshold. The way is not without danger. Everything good is costly. And the development of personality is one of the most costly of all things. It is a matter of saying yea to oneself, of taking oneself at the most serious of, ta- of yeah, taking oneself as the most serious of tasks, of being conscious of everything one does, and keeping it constantly before one's eyes in all its dubious aspects. Truly, a task that taxes us to the utmost. So I thought that was so powerful and so so well said. And to me, that expresses the essence of a life examined, right? And then a life oh, a life yeah, examined yeah. is lived 24 hours at a time, right? Let's say about 18 of it awake at a time. And those 18 hours are composed of many seconds and you're awake and you're here, right? So pay attention, right? D- don't just don't just what what is what, what am I admonishing myself and others not to do? Uh, don't just assume that this waking reality is not fucking weird. Okay, because <laughs> it is, because it is right. You're on an orb floating, and you don't know what around a bunch of other orbs that are burning. You don't know why, and and here we are. We don't know what this is. We don't know what this is. Stop thinking. You know, th- that's one thing. You don't know what this is. Nobody knows what this is. Uh, we can't walk around pretending that we do. And it's better to us to accept and assert consciously that we don't, and live that way, and be mm-hmm. interested in yourself as a manifestation of the cosmos that you are. Yeah. I think that you're kind of giving the great argument as to why a paradigm that I was looking for out of this book, you know, the purpose of looking for it, right. If barreling through consciousness every single day without any kind of recourse for why you are where you are or any kind of awareness for what caused you to be what you are, it's like you said, a life examine is unworth living. So, yeah, 100% agree. Giving, uh, bringing Young into this and having Young's uh, analytical kind of background tie into a paradigm of how to look at the world, I-, I think it's a perfect match. And maybe that's also, too, why I found this book kind of appealing because, I mean, when I studied, when I was looking, studied, when I listened to YouTube videos, podcasts, and uh, lectures on alchemy, not studied. That's um, study. I count that as study. Okay, so when I studied um, alchemy, I 
I really began to see that what we were taught as alchemy and like kids where, you know, like feudal Europe was trying to create gold from lead. That was more of the, I don't know. It was a description. It was just a definition given to it for the sake of making one quickly. That's the only way I can like give my opinion on that definition, because the more I dove into it, al alchemy is really like a, phil a philosophical sort of practice. Mm. Um, you saw how they were talking about the philosophical stone representing mm. a fully individualized self and all these things that are just supposed to be representations. And that's not uncommon either. Um, I know that there's history of things like magic or witchcraft where things were spoken in code for the sake of keeping them secret because, you know, they weren't allowed in Christian or theological type of um, governments or monarchies. So a creation of a alternative paradigm by which to translate and ingest the world through for the sake of bettering yourself and reaching the full individualized self I mean, I really think that that and Young are a perfect match, which is obviously why the guy wrote this, but I really just want to emphasize on how I see that what you're saying being just a better argument for why this book taking an alchemical philosophical approach is something that can be really powerful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you make of determinism, of physical determinism, of whether we're... For, or the, you know we're the authors of our own thoughts and we can truly make any choice in the universe or like I said earlier we're kind of locked in and the future is uh, in some ways a set in stone in the past we just don't know what happened yet you're talking about free will basically yeah versus determinism that that conversation that people have had mm -hmm. from time memoriam I don't know um, on the one hand I want to I want to stay free will because ultimately I try to really think that I think I see the good in man and I see kind of the uniqueness of our experience. No, I, I want to throw out there. I, I think that it's a, I think that it's a false dichotomy. So I want to, I don't want to, you know, pretend that I think that there's a distinction and the question kind of asking the question that way made it seem like there is, I don't think there's a distinction. So I just put that third option out there. If you, if you think there's a distinction, what do you think that distinction is? If you don't think there's a distinction, uh, why not? To be honest with you, I haven't really heard a lot of arguments that have pulled me into either camp, I guess is what I'm saying, mm. is that I can understand determinism from the sense of, like, laws of, there are four fundamental forces, right? So if this atom is moving in this direction, then it's going to push this other atom out this direction. And if you could, on a mathematical level of accuracy to the nth degree produce accurate models then i believe you just hit play and everything's already predetermined and it just plays out okay. that's kind of i see like a really good logical argument for that on the other hand i know that if this was supposed to be predetermined for me i have been put on this wild fucking ride that i don't understand or maybe that's the point i don't know but i don't necessarily feel that humans are so subjective that humans are not conscious enough to make their own autonomous decisions i don't i see that the human experience, um, the things that we all talk about amongst ourselves um, that are part of that experience. I think all of those things are so vivid and difficult to navigate for us that to say that they were predetermined, I think that's kind of silly. I don't think that that's possible. See, I don't see a, I don't see a distinction between, I don't see a distinction between the four fundamental forces of this universe manifesting as they would universe and humans making decisions. 
I don't see I don't see a, a conflict there. Uh, I see the fundamental forces of the universe as they are manifesting human decisions as they do. Whoa, say that again. I think the four fundamental forces of the universe manifesting as they do, giving rise to the decisions as we make them in real time. Uh, so I think that con- I think the interval, the frame rate of consciousness, as far as I can tell, uh, is about 15 milliseconds, maybe less, maybe let's let's say 10 milliseconds. I think 15 is a better number, but it's it's that's our that's the frame rate of our conscious experience. The frame rate of the universe itself, 10 to the 43. It's much, much higher. So even though you as a person have detected nothing happening in the last 100 milliseconds, your brain has had a bunch of things happen. It's seen the light change. It knows that this thing is moving and it knows that this thing is this sound has been made and it knows that this feeling has been felt and it's doing all sorts of stuff. It's just that you are kind of a you're kind of a lagging indicator on what's actually happening in in biology. And by you, I mean me and every other person. I just see us, I just see us as huge machines. Uh, And I don't see any conflict there between determinism understood as a physical uh, likelihood. Of course, we can't do experiments in time. So this is a belief. This is not Mm -hmm. a, this is not a knowledge. You you can't claim to know determinism, but you can believe it. Um, So I don't see any distinction between that and talking about the way that humans make choice and make decision because we don't choose on the time scale of biological phenomena that's a hundred milliseconds that's two milliseconds that's half a millisecond that's the scale of biology we don't even exist at that time scale we don't exist until you get to 150 half a second okay now we're here now we're awake right now we're clicking on but that that that's like saying uh, you know, the, the United States isn't made of miles. Of course, it's made of miles, uh, many miles in a country. Yeah. So let me ask a let me ask a question to kind of understand your viewpoint a little more. Are you saying that the it's a false dichotomy because, like the physics experiments, where the observer changes the outcome of the experiment, and that kind of philosophy, uh, the difference in frame rates between the way the universe works and the way us as an observer works necessitates that kind of interaction. Or are you saying the fact that there even is a different frame rate necessitates an interaction? No, I'm just saying that the the two don't meet because the scales aren't comparable so the Mm. reason that when we talk about choice and we talk about decision and we talk about human choice and human decision we're talking about real phenomena people really make choices people really have deliberations and people really have reactions those are real things but those things happen on the scale of 250 milliseconds half a second right that's they, they don't exist smaller than that and they're made up of smaller sub millisecond events on which they have no bearing and which they are themselves the results of now so there, there are two two quotes that i think are important one's from sam harris one's from jordan peterson so sam has said that i as the subject of my experience cannot know what i will next think or do until a thought or intention arises and thoughts and intentions are caused by physical events and mental stirrings of which i am not aware And Jordan Peterson said that even if you're a trained determinist, and it it seems logical to think that way, if you understand scientifically, it doesn't, we don't, it doesn't seem 
that way. And we don't treat each other that way. And that's the important. It hinges on Jordan Peterson's seeming. It doesn't seem like the future is set in stone from where we stand. That's important. That's an important seeming. Why is that why is that important? Because frankly, whether we have knowledge of it shouldn't matter the way I'm looking at it, but what maybe I missed something. Of course, if you know the future, you, it's not going to be the future, right? If you know that you're if you can see the future where you go get a burger later, then now you have a choice and you don't you don't have to do it. You're, you're not but, locked in. But you were talking about time is linear, ergo the mm-hmm. future has already happened because we've done some math to decide that we understand that that's the way that it works. But we don't know what the future is going to be. We just know that it's already happened. We can't not not the not that it has happened. Uh, just that it's it's probably going to go this route. So if let, let's say it's this, let's say I have a ball and I put the ball on top of a slide, and at the bottom of the slide there are a couple of flimsy dominoes that are very large, and the ball is very heavy. Okay. I haven't released the ball, so I can say. I'm going to release the ball, and then I release it, and then you take a snapshot in time. And now the ball is free on the slide, although snapshot in time, we froze it. It hasn't moved down the, the slide yet. We can say the ball's going to knock over the dominoes. That's mm-hmm. always going to happen. There's no mm-hmm. – there's you know, un- unless a bird flies into the ball while it's coming down the, down the slide and knocks it off, which is – but let's say that doesn't happen. It's a vacuum. It's a tube. The ball's going to knock over the dominoes. That's mm-hmm. our experience of time. Here in this moment at 2020, this is the state of my brain. This is the state of your brain. This is the state of the world. Uh, and this is, this is the state. And the next state will be a result of this state. And the next state a result of this one. Uh, and that doesn't – in any way conflict with the phenomenon of choice and decision and deliberation, which happens across many states. There's no single state that a choice is made in. Uh, yeah, but I think that that's saying that choices purely come from our own individual free will. And I think determinism is trying to say that while you may feel as though they're choices because of predetermined methods that the forces interact, you are ultimately going to make a ch- this particular choice. And if we understood the factors that went in, we could predict with 100% accuracy what the choice is that you're going to make 100% of the time. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's what choice is. No, no, no. I'm saying that um, it choice is a result of the four fundamental forces jiving around in your brain. Mm-hmm. So if we understood where all the atoms were and could pinpoint mathematically the way that they were going to move, we could guess with absolute accuracy what your choice is going to be. Yes. Okay, so how is that free how does that how does that allow for free will there? So free will as an operational definition, I use this one and a lot of people do. Free uh-huh. will is the absence of manipulation blackmail or coercion free will sorry i'm sorry yeah no free will is when a choice when i make a choice and it's absent those things it's it's autonomous it's coming from inside of me uh and a a lot of people use it that way um Mm -hmm. no it makes sense but i just don't understand how if things are predetermined they're not manipulate okay, the, the the issue that i'm bringing up with is manipulation manipulation means that there was a preset path and then somebody reached in there with a third party or an external factor gussied up and fucked with the results a little bit and then let it keep going and now the results have been manipulated by something outside of us mm, right mm. that to me exactly sounds like the four forces operating like if we may want to go some way, it's not up to us because the four forces are operating in our brain. Uh, I would, right? I would, 
I would limit manipulation to other humans. That's what I mean by manipulation. I mean, I mean, somebody's got your kid in their trunk at gunpoint and they say, yeah. deliver that package or else. That's what I mean by manipulation. But if you put that limit on manipulation, doesn't that mean that free will is now being asked of what it means in relation to other people? I think free will was talking about free will in the sense of like grand scheme of the universe. And I think that it was you... used that way. I don't use it that way. Are you using, do you use it that way? Oh, I don't know. I feel like you, I feel like to only use it in relation to the, what happens between humans. I think that's a bit short-sighted and putting on blinders. I think that determinism is trying to say that from the second of the Big Bang, what was going to happen, if you could do the calculations, could have been calculated and predicted. Mm -hmm. I think that that's what determinism is saying. Mm -hmm. I think that it's saying that if we knew the position, energy, and all the different forces and factors to a very, very, very precise level, we could create the Big Bang and model everything. You just hit play, and you would see Kari come up and Evan come up, and then we could zoom in on the moment where Kari and Evan are having this exact conversation, mm -hmm. and we could completely guess what we're going to say word for word. Mm -hmm. I think that's what determinism is saying, mm -hmm. and I don't understand how the free will in relation to manipulation from humans exempts that the free will that i put forward in the in the question and that was an old debate um does is counter to that the, that old free other free will as as a contrast says that oh no you are the ultimate author and even if we think we could predict everything so this was actually it actually relates a little bit to alchemical psychology because uh, cavalli used a couple pictures from deepak chopra uh, and Deepak Chopra, when, once I read that, I wrote it down and said, huge red flag. Because Deepak Chopra is one of the the most pseudo, egregious pseudoscientists talking about the operation of the human will. So he's saying that, he, he would argue that you as a person have an have a influence on the subatomic quantum forces inside of your brain. And that, that ultimately you choose from the infinite options of the universe. Of course, I don't think that's... Uh, even close to accurate uh, and so that's the that's that definition of free will that's contrasted in the question i don't use free will that way the way that i use free will isn't a contrast the way that i use the f f phrase free will actually can be described in deterministic terms yeah i think so i think it can i yeah. just feel like with all due respect it's kind of changing away from what free will to me would mean that i guess i guess that's what it comes down to just a difference in opinion on how i would want to define free will it's a, really... it's an old debate, uh, and I've I've yet to, I mean you're you're one of the most meaningful people uh, and have one of the most meaningful engagements about it. <laughs> I try I try to pick I try to pick uh, pick this fight wherever I go. Um, I haven't had much success over the years, to be absolutely honest. Well, if you're looking to uh, pick a debate, I will be your man every time. I don't know why, but I always have. Maybe it's just my dislike for authority, but. Um the term devil's advocate as soon as i learned that i was like yeah that's me i don't know why but that's me someone can tell me belief that i completely agree with and immediately i would just want to follow it up with something that i don't believe in mm -hmm. simply for the fact of providing an alternative viewpoint i think it goes back to what i said earlier about my most successful times in learning about the world or i feel like learning about myself was when i was given a viewpoint that i hadn't had before mm -hmm. or given you know exposure to something that i hadn't really thought about and so even if it didn't change the way that i felt giving it a different context of understanding was really, really beneficial. So I think I'm still kind of operating within that still. I'm with that. I'm a, I'm a contrarian. Uh, absolutely. Nietzsche was a contrarian. Uh, you know, yeah, you, you gotta, yeah, it's, it's, 
you know, it's like that uh it's like that sphere analogy that I was using where as you as you develop the world will tell you all sorts of ways to be. There's no shortage of people that will tell you what to do. They're around every single corner. Uh, and if you don't like one, you can move to the next one. You can always find somebody more charming, more intelligent, more powerful to tell you what to do. But you have to make a conscious choice to buck all of them. All of them. There's no one. Uh, no one that will that will tell me what to do that I don't choose to follow their order. Uh, and I think that... Sorry, not to kill you off, no, no, but no, I you're think fine. that... That is the most perfect articulation of the argument against using something like alchemical psychology to put your worldview together. Because if you are going to take one philosophy and use that as your paradigm by which to ingest the entire world, it's never going to be perfect. So as much as I was looking for this book as being this kind of one trick pony, if not to give all the answers, but at least a methodology by which to find the answers, kind of like the scientific method is, um, you know, it's not it's not really possible. It's not really doable due to what you just said. I think that's a really great articulation of the argument against. Yeah, I, I my worldview, you know, I just collect things as they seem. And I came across science and science is a marvelous, marvelous thing to understand. Mm -hmm. uh, I think scientific literacy is woefully low in our culture. Uh, you know, are you are you going to take the coronavirus vaccine? I The fact that I'm even on the fence about that upsets me because i understand the science right, um, right. but it's just they so had to build true. it so fast where do you where do you stand on coronavirus vaccine I, I come down to just a lack of trust in institutions it's not a matter of trusting science it's a matter of trusting the institutions representing them which is like the matter of trusting any institution for any reason right like they talked about the big thing that they're always going to use and i always hope is a fair criticism is we were told not to wear masks because it was better for um making sure that it was available to healthcare workers perfectly legitimate but the fact of the matter is that they lied and if there's going to be from a responsible leader perspective if your goal is to make sure to maintain trust in people you can't do it that way right so if you want somebody to be able to trust the vetting system not trust the science i don't know i, I feel like it's a perfectly legitimate argument to make the distinction between i trust a scientifically vetted uh, vaccine that was proven safe, but I don't trust the institution that's doing the vetting. So I think where maybe... my lack of trust in this in this movement is, I lack trust in some individual person. Right? I I, I don't know. You you can kind of trust the group or you can't trust the group, but there's just so much social pressure to get a vaccine out. There's so much economic pressure to be the first to get a vaccine out and i just don't trust that there isn't just one person in that pipeline who gets that result that says that it's bad but then they kind of delete that file and have the scientists that's underneath them do it again and then the result's a little bit better so that's the one they use you know i just uh i'm probably not gonna be first in line to get it i'll i'll, I'll get the second you know i'm not gonna clamor to get the first wave catch me with the second wave <laughs> i think that's fair i think that's fair just from the sense of like the first wave if anything is normally shit so just better to be a little more patient right i'll totally agree with that yeah and if it wasn't in the pandemic right if we if we had you know let's say the coronavirus hit and then four months in we discovered that some treatment that already exists works for it and so we weren't all suffering from it but they said we're going to create a vaccine and then that vaccine comes out late 2021 that one oh yeah you took your time there wasn't a rush 
right? There wasn't, but in this situation, the scientists have guns to their heads, uh, and it's the guns of the people that are funding the science that say you need to get the vaccine out uh, so we can make a bunch of money. And, and yeah, I'm just I mean, I can see the time thing, but I mean, this is gonna sound maybe just me being naive and American and idealizing them, but. I really feel like if a vaccine were to come out tomorrow from the European Union and the institutions within the European Union had vetted it and said that it's kosher, I'd go for it. Because for whatever reason, even though I have no involvement in there, I have this perception that European institutions, especially ones through the European Union, especially regarding science, are much more robust and thorough and consumer-focused than American institutions. I mean, I used the privacy laws that got passed, uh, what is it, GDPR, I think, mm-hmm. um, through um, Europe. You also look at consumer protection. Most consumer protection suits or anti-corporate sort of lawsuits are coming out of Europe in terms of protecting consumers. So that optics alone really makes me feel like if a European institution were to come out and back it up, I'd take it day one, no problem. I that's hear a that. bit naive of me. That's, that's a bit naive that's of me, fair. probably. But I mean, because right, like I'm sure that they have just many issues that we do, and I'm just getting a rose-colored glasses view because I'm looking at it from, you know, halfway around the world. I'm not going through and with a fine-tuned comb and criticizing the people appointed and all that like I am through our current national politics. So you There's know, only it's so not much as... you can do. See, I would think, I would, I would. You know, I trust the, the science, and so I would hope that the scientists would err on ineffectiveness than uh, harm, right? So if they're if they've got these vaccines and they're running these trials, and they've got one that seems to be slightly less effective than they want versus another that seems to cause slightly closer to statistically statistically significant adverse effects. Of course, nothing that actually breaches that statistic, uh, that relevance, that deviation would get released. But they can tell stuff that's closer to breaching that adverse level and stuff that isn't. Um, I don't know. You know, I, and I think that when the vaccine hits, I'll actually dig deeper into the, the basic pr- papers that describe the the serum and look <laughs> and look a little bit more closely than I otherwise would. Um, maybe well, I'll get, I get like in line. A, I mean, can I maybe say, though, that if it got all the way to the point where you and I can see it, don't you think that any f- numbers that needed to be fudged already would have been? The only opportunity, in my opinion, for real on behalf of the consumer checks is one, the company itself making sure they don't make something shitty because they don't want to be liable. If it makes something to the point where people are getting sick, there's going to be lawsuits out the ass no matter what country or whatever you're in. So no company like this is going to put themselves in that kind of direct liability. That for one is our assurance. Well, two, but that only sure that assurance only exists if it does isn't accompanied by a sign off from whatever countries it's released in that that company can't be sued for adverse effects because they had to do the trial uh, they had to do an expedited trial. Yeah, I agree, but I don't think that there's as far as I know, I think that the only times that kind of liability is waived is when it's in the experimental stage. I'm not I'm going to be looking for that. I'm just going to be looking yeah. because all eyes are on coronavirus vaccine and there's a lot of pressure and uh you know if if someone were building me a table, I wouldn't give them a one week timeline. Say build the best table you can build in a week, right? I'd say build the best table you can build. Period. Uh, and so I feel like that timeline 
just across any manufacturing process, uh, has a likelihood of impinging on quality, infringing on quality. Um, I think that normally it would impinge on quality, but that's because the push to expedite is also constrained by budget. In this case, the entire fucking world mm -hmm. is throwing money at this, right? Like Pfizer said, they came out with their 90% effective vaccine after getting funding from um, Europe, I think. Germany was the big one they were saying to get funding from. But they also got a guarantee to buy two, that the U.S. would buy 2 billion doses from them. Mm -hmm. So, I, I don't know. I think that the financial incentives and funding is there to where you could produce a vaccine in 10 days if you could do all the testing needed because you could just have a million people doing the testing. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is that we have to wait X amount of time mm -hmm. because some adverse effects have to have time. And, and also because manifest. it's a vaccine. You have to have these people going around. Uh, yes. to see if they're, you know, yes, it's exactly. not like testing a drug that's going to do something. It's testing a, a drug that's going to prevent something, which exactly. is a different, creates a different type of time course. Exactly. So because those things exist, I really don't necessarily see time as being as relevant to a poor manufacturing process. I can see that if it was just one company trying to push this thing for the sake of um, their product, but this is something where the entire world is anxiously trying to get it. Ergo, the entire world is pushing behind it, right? Like every single country has a task force, and every single country is trying to do some kind of legislation to get either a guarantee for the vaccine, you know, something or another. People are going to be buying this. Oh, excuse me. My do you birthday. know anybody who's gotten it? COVID? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I knew somebody that got it within the first month. Um, my. My cousin's uh, my cousin's girlfriend is a nurse up in San Francisco, and when they started locking down, she tested positive. He tested positive. She has uh, I'm not sure if it's asthma or allergies or both, but um, she ended up like being pretty sick for a week, had trouble breathing, and she's like fit, young, active, right? Like, there's not like she has any sort of the major risk factors other than the respiratory stuff, as I understand it. But it was pretty difficult for her. And then uh, we've also had uh, some family friends who were a bit irresponsible and threw a family gathering. And sure enough, Jeez. they uh, they all got sick with it, too. I haven't known anybody that's died of it, um, although we did have um, not did have we have we've had a lot of workers come in going from the house over the past two years. And inevitably, we've made friends with a few of them because a lot of them are Mexican. My mom speaks Spanish and we're a Mexican family. So there's immediately some kind of like pleasant relationship there. And there have been a few guys who we were really hoping to hear back from and we never did hear back from. And generally, if you're not going to hear back from these guys, it's because they're dead or something like that. Right. So we, we really do wonder if they might have gotten sick, especially because you hear about how much more uh, it was spreading through latin communities or just communities of color for many number of reasons yeah definitely uh definitely seen its effects around here how about you did you know anybody that got it yeah i have an aunt that got it uh she was quarantined in one of the rvs that the state put up on beaches along our beaches uh, and for her it was just uh, a medium cold so mm. That's the way it goes, right? Some people get really severe infections. Some people get a mild cold. Yeah, I think we're definitely seeing how therapeutics are becoming more effective. Um, there, I think, like, you know, 
the death rate is i'm not going to try and throw numbers out there but the deck the death rate has definitely shrunk so it's not nearly as lethal as it was before well, i can pull the time... up the do you know about the the johns hopkins dashboard is that the one you use no actually i don't what's oh, yeah. that one? i was so i was going to the johns hopkins dashboard in well i was coming to the dashboard in january because this thing was tracking the coronavirus in china uh and i was watching it on this dashboard in china uh in january and you know it didn't really come didn't see it wasn't certain that it was going to go around the world and so there wasn't any sort of panic as i was watching it uh, mm -hmm. and then i watched the few cases show up in the states uh, and by few i mean literally five or whatever and all of those people had traveled from china or that re and that region of china so there wasn't anything concerning there but then i think it was maybe February ish, late February, where somebody showed up in California that had not traveled, that was community spread, and that was when I uh, sounded the alarm yeah. with my mom. I said, "I'm not going over there. Uh, you need to stop people from coming over." And um, the office wasn't even shut down at that point. It was another two weeks before the office shut down. But the office even got ahead of it, uh, as far as a lot of people around our nation, so to speak, or, or even other businesses. But, but. Uh, Office is good. So death rate, global death is 1.282 million. So uh, at the moment, yeah, I would want to know that as a percent of cases because I remember when, like, it first got started, the death rate was like 1.5 percent, and everyone was just averaging that up to two. And two percent death rate was like the number that everyone was drawing around. So either... daily deaths are at about 11k this is global these are global numbers so 11 9k 10k uh, those are daily deaths right now um, as high as they've been and then daily cases are up at about a hundred what is what number is this 100 oh wait oh geez louise that's that's 500k so the daily cases are up around six five hundred ninety k six hundred k um so what's what was it ten k a day out of yeah, five ninety so whatever percentage that is back of the napkin math yeah i'm not gonna do it on online live live math is yeah. terrible never do live math yeah I sounded smart for maybe a few minutes there. I'm not going to shoot in the foot. Mm -mm, don't do, do it. Can't do it right. I actually had uh, some notes on my board where I supposedly added up my expenses for the week. Um, or I mean the month. But I added up what I had spent and wrote that number down rather than what was left. And so I was walking <laughs> I was walking around very confidently for the past five days thinking I had about three times as much in my account as I actually had. <laughs> Um, do you, do you know what those things are? I, it's kind of nice about those mistakes. You only make them once. That's the reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't, you know, and it's just a number on my whiteboard, so it's not like it was. If all I had to do was look at my bank account and see that the see that the math was wrong. Let me ask um, you about power. Let me ask you about the concept of of power. Oh, uh, perfect. Because yeah. I want to segue that into the election. I do want to talk about that with you too. Let's go. Yeah, power yeah. Then. We'll we'll finish with the election. We'll finish with current events. So. Because the concept of power is so timeless and so important uh, with this series, I want to kind of go on record talking about what it means and then where it's going. So, what do you think? Where do you think the power is manifesting in our society today, uh, and how do you think it could be better manifested in the future? Uh, oof. 
I mean, I'm going to take your perspective here and the way you treated Cavalli's questions. What do you mean by power? What kind of power in particular? So I described um, three types of power in, in one of my more recent articles, and it was the power of the vote, the power of the arrest, and the power of the buy. So the power of the vote was the power to choose who has the power of the arrest. The power of the arrest is the ability to forcibly separate someone who is deemed a threat to themselves or society from society against their will. That's the power of the arrest. And mm -hmm, the power mm -hmm. of the buy means I can guarantee that I can have more than my own finite attention attending to the tasks that my will desires. And so if I have the power of the buy to the level of $60,000, then I can go pay somebody $60,000 and I can guarantee that I can have at least one more attention other than my own attending to the task that I desire. And of course, then it goes up to 60 million, 600 million, however much money you have. That's how mm -hmm. many more attentions you can bring into your task. And that's, and the, of course the power of the buy means you can run commercials and, and, you know, but you can, it should be, I could expand it more, but I think it's, it's yeah. kind of explanatory what the power of the buy is. Um, There's a couple yeah, of ideas I've had about power recently. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I still, I know that you didn't want me to do this, but I still kind of feel like it's incomplete. And I feel like re Do what? Do, I didn't want you to do what? No, no. Remember when you were like telling me that, um, or I was pushing back on the question, saying that like power to me, the way you were asked the question previously in our text messages was that you were asking about power in interpersonal relationships, particularly. And this question here is talking about the different types, or excuse me, the things that you just described were different types of power that currently exist in our society. Mm -hmm. And the way I kind of saw power on a more broader sense was as this ever fluid ebb and flow. Um, currency for lack of a better way to put it that moves in and out of individuals groups collective consciousness whatever it is okay and so to define power as merely power of the by no 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 let me not let me not no. stand on that those definitions as if they are encompassing that's not at all what i'm doing uh, yeah which is which isn't fair of me to say that you're trying to say it yeah, encompassing. yeah 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 i think you're, you're definitely right on that i think more so what i'm saying is that to try to put definitions of power as only the way our society experiences them isn't to me a discussion about power it's a way a discussion or criticism about society and the way we're doing it fair um, enough I think that, yeah, yeah that's I, fair yeah i think discussions about power specifically need to talk about the way groups or individuals interact because that's where power comes from right like the power to buy comes from the is it that... i wouldn't say that's where power comes from I definitely think so. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think power comes from the way that people interact and the circumstances associated with the interaction. Well, but people. not groups, not necessarily group interaction, because you can have a power <clears throat> battle between two individuals. Yeah, group. Uh, I, I should say either or, like either groups or individuals or both. Well, definitely power is. Well, so when we talk about power, we're definitely talking about a dynamic between humans. It's interpersonal. Inherently. Sure, yeah. 100%. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. But it also, but it also has as much clout. It also has as much, uh, all of the things that happen to power between individuals, like between you and me, all of the power dynamics that would happen between you and me would also happen, although on a larger scale or maybe manifested slightly different 
the exact same principles and concepts of power dynamics would carry into a group of a thousand people versus another group of a thousand people. Though mm. so I really don't see. Well, how do you see power manifesting today? However, you would put it. Don't don't just go by my definitions. How would you How would you put it? How would you say this is where I see power today, uh, and this is what's right with it, and this is what's wrong with it? I think power once again comes down to the understanding that we have of others, and power is simply mm, secondary effects of the initial feelings that we have towards others. So it is not, I don't know what I'm trying to say here because like power is power. Like I really like the way I said that power was currency. I really still feel like that counts because it moves back and forth. I don't like that argument though, because currency has an intention by which it's spent. I am pulling a hundred dollars out of my wallet and I'm putting it down on the table to receive something else in particular. And that's not the way that power moves between people. It's just more so that my bank account has X power. And now that bank account has shifted to where you've gotten some of the power. So I have less and you have more. That's the way I want to analogize like the currency part of it, because currency really specifies like intention and transactions and all that and i don't necessarily think that that's the way power moves i'm more so in saying that there's a finite amount of power that can be held and it is just going to be distributed around culture and society based upon a bunch of different factors that i believe mostly are feelings and emotions that's fair what do you think we are what do you think we're getting wrong um and if you're inspired what do you think we're getting right about power uh in America. I think we are getting wrong the perception by which the perception of how much power we have as individuals. Um, I used to think that Americans were pretty like arrogant, boisterous people who were just going to do whatever they wanted. And the fact of the matter is that they write, they're right about that. But Americans aren't going to do that most of the time if it means being confrontational or having some interactions with somebody else. Um, that could that could be construed as negative or something like that. Americans are like pretty polite and kind people and just want to have good interactions with others. And that predisposition means that there is only going to be certain power dynamics that come into play in a conversation between two people. So looking at my example of Americans and the way Americans are, what I'm really saying is that the individual, the individuals experiencing the power dynamic are the ones that are going to define the way power is experienced. So what we're getting wrong in the country, in my opinion, is we don't recognize how much power we have as individuals against our political system. Um, kind of tying into the election here one of the things that i really saw was that it seems like working class values and like working class people is what's right for the taking by either party here in the u.s and it would that question kind of says that it's going to take a political party jumping in and claiming these values of the economic left uh minimum wage unions all that kind of stuff um claiming those values that are economic left for themselves to attract power towards them. When in reality, if enough people got together and made a new political party as individuals that stood by this, 
they could then create and attract more power at the same time. But that initial step of creating the party yourself in order to represent these things isn't there. Or that initial step of feeling like these things should be there and holding your representatives accountable to, that's where I feel like human uh, Americans don't recognize the power they have and are getting it wrong. I think maybe just a better way to summarize that was to say that Americans don't realize how much power they have and how much power there is in just holding people accountable. And who do you think needs to be held accountable for what? I think everybody should be accountable for everything. But the fact of the matter is that we all have too many things going on. So there's no way that that's going to be possible. It has to be this kind of prioritization of what's important to be held accountable for. But certainly, certainly by just by having the instinct that there's some some people not being held accountable uh it seems like you it seems like you have detected an infraction somewhere in our in our culture yeah i think that you know everybody's general distaste with how everything is going um i think the polarization the infractions what are the what are the most salient so or so so i guess if you were say this so finish this sentence I am a blank voter. How would you finish that sentence? I'm an independent voter. Okay, well, if you independent's fine, but okay, what would be the but, number two? Not, yeah, but I I feel like you're maybe hearing that as like I'm associating with the political party, but I'm more so meant to say that. No, like I'm I did. Okay, okay. Well, sorry. Um, what would be your number two? Voter? Until we, I want to get, I want to get to your your number one grievance against America. What do you, what do you think the, cause we all, you know, our brains are problem seekers. That's what the human brain does. The human brain finds problems. If everything's hunky dory, it's going to find the P under the mattress, right? And that's mm-hmm. just how our brains work. So what do you think is the biggest problem issue facing our culture, our American culture uh, today? Realizing how unpowerful we are to make the change that we need to. Um, what change really should we think- make? holding our government accountable for what what have they done i I think that's kind of like relative to the individual right so like a lot of people who voted for yes you the individual (laughs) what do you you think they've done oh you're asking me about okay okay from my perspective i think that they've uh abused and consolidated power to the point where it's a reinforcing cycle not to where it's a expression of the will of the people and you talk about DC establishments or you talk about um, like rising always talks about the swamp in a way that Trump talked about it, where it's these people who come to the president that's just coming in and basically say, no, don't worry about the state department. We'll keep running it the way it's been going. And that's essentially part of the problem. It leads to cronies. It leads to nepotism. It leads to um, corruption. And I really feel like that lack of, Americans holding those in power accountable because we feel as though we are not powerful is the biggest issue. Mm. I that statement and the last way I've been talking about it really feel like it comes down on Americans for saying you guys aren't as like responsible to be paying attention to your government. I really, really do feel like part of the reason as to why that is is because there is an intentional push to kind of keep us uh busy or sedated or whatever you want to call it but we're so overloaded with fill in the blank whatever it is that we don't feel like we can actually make those kinds of changes 
so in a way i guess power is one thing but maybe values too i wish maybe americans had a bit more value in the sense of wanting to hold politicians accountable or stuff like that and the reason why i say this specifically is because my grandparents were just visiting here from washington and they're kind of small town folk from the western side of the state Mm. and they hate politicians too i talked to my grandpa and he's like you know what they are they're a politician that was your first you know and he has this very very negative view of what politicians are Mm. there's plenty of literature cultural references about being a slimy greasy politician you hear plenty of punchlines about where i'm not a person who tells the truth i'm a politician ha 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 right like it's clearly in our culture understood that politicians are these grimy sleazy people who aren't representative of what we want and you know we all just are kind of like ah shit well i guess next election we'll get them there and i really do wish that there was more of like a, oh we should call our representative today because this is the time to call and let them know the way we feel and them knowing the way we feel is important. And there's power in that. And I just don't feel like Americans have been given and empowered with that kind of, I don't know if it's critical thinking skills. I don't know if it's just enough time on your hands to be able to look at all this stuff. I don't know what it is, but Americans haven't been given the things that they need in order to be as accountable of the government as they could be. And I wonder if it's up to us to just deal with the fact that we don't have everything that we need and make it happen anyways, or if we need to make a structural institutional change to our society so that way we can empower people to make that change. What's What solution? You haven't thought of any solutions? You don't have anything you would recommend? Um, I think my solutions are a bit short-sighted because I think like kind of one of the biggest ways of making a difference is always education but that's a really really difficult and uh labor intensive and resource intensive kind of change um you know i think that we saw with coronavirus right like the amount of people just simply at home having more time being able to educate themselves on the issues it kind of led to like a different change in our consciousness i'm not saying it's for the better but i'm saying it led to a change so if this injection of only time produce this kind of change in consciousness what other small things could we inject like a little bit of money or a little bit of whatever what other small things could we inject into the uh, kind of greater consciousness to make larger positive changes i don't know what that is i guess the point is i want to i want to say something big like education but i've seen that coronavirus given people only time to make a big enough difference that maybe the, the solution is much smaller this reminds me uh, of the fact that I had been uh, at our company for months talking to everyone I can meet about basic income. Uh, and you were the first person to mention basic income to me <laughs> before I could get it out. <laughs> and I usually got it out in the first conversation. And you were the first person that said, have you ever heard of basic income to me? I was the basic income guy in that culture. I, I was picking everybody's ear about basic income. Um I think this is, that's the next best step, man. That I mean, that will give us more time, more money. Um, see what I think. So Nietzsche complained that society couldn't excrete. Now, when he was talking about excretion, he was talking about doing away with worthless people and worthless ideas, just discarding it and burning it and moving on for, for better things. Um, I don't stand with him on that, but... I do think that we have ideas like uh, 
for instance, run, runaway capitalism. Runaway capitalism creates human waste, and it, and it's humans that it considers wasteful. Uh, this is what we have going on with the homelessness right now. I think that the homelessness, the homeless crisis, is an example of what runaway capitalists consider human waste. Look, if you can't, if you don't have a skill, if you can't convince somebody with money to buy your attention and labor from mm-hmm. you, then you're worthless, right? This is the message that we're all getting loud and clear. Uh, and I think that a basic income will be uh, kind of like a, a, a catch underneath where you have this system that's, that's ostensibly trying to create all this waste, even though, of course, these, these are people. They're not waste by any stretch of the imagination. This is just how the, the capitalists would treat them, throw them to of the course. streets and let them starve, let them fight each other. But we put in basic income, and it gives these people something solid. It gives all of us something solid to stand on. When the capitalist class has discarded you, and I think that's the next best solution. So, so that way people who have been discarded by the capitalist class don't have to l- lie down. They aren't on their backs. They're on their feet. <laughs> and so now yeah, we I mean, have allies. I agree with everything a thousand percent, except it sounds like the last part of what you said, which was where once the capitalist class is gone, there's going to be something to stand on. And I wonder... No, no, no. If... Not gone. The capitalist class will still be there. The capitalist, Once the capitalist class has discarded them, for them, they'll have something to stand okay. on. Okay. Okay. There, I misunderstood you there. Okay. Yeah. I misunderstood you. Because I really wanted to like emphasize about the reason why we can have a concept like universal basic income is because and I hate to admit this because I don't really like it, but capitalism had run amok and was able to exploit a bunch of people and make efficiency gains that were immoral to a T. But the reality is that we're here now and we have all the wealth coming in from it, so we can probably consider something like that. I think if you were to try to reach a point, if you were to try to rebuild society from the beginning that was a thousand percent fair without that sense of capitalism up to here so we can introduce something like ubi with the richness this country has i don't know if it would have happened as fast so because of that i can't help but feel like there's got to be some sort of value to capitalism it just like all things has to be kept in balance yeah no i mean capitalism's wonderful i'm all for private property and private business and the police protecting private interests it's just that capitalism has an inherent flaw that's not anybody's fault it's inherent in the system in capitalism a little bit of capital can acquire more capital and Mm -hmm. as a rule capital is a finite resource or at least it represents finite resources right because it's a medium of exchange that we use to represent land uh, energy, right? Timber, uh, time, oil, attention. or, you know, time, attention, yeah. all these things that are actually finite. And we use capital to represent them, uh, to represent right. scarcity. It serves as a medium. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing, but it has a tendency to accumulate and concentrate over time. This isn't anybody's fault. This is inherent in the system. So we need meaningful distribution. If we are going to keep society rolling and i i fear deeply fear that what we're doing in the united states is we're creating a system of distribution that if the capitalist class discards you if you can't sell your labor if you don't have a skill if no one wants to buy anything from you and therefore you have to receive the dole in order to eat because we don't have people starving we don't we are gonna have we're doing a good job there right we are gonna let our citizens starve but we're gonna give you just enough so that you don't starve. And then as soon as you do, do anything to better yourself. As soon as you do gain any sort of employment, we take that subsidy from you. We take that that uh, dividend from you. 
and then you're you fall back to the bottom and then you have to depend on it again and so it's what we have is a system of distribution that is so weak all it does is keep people from starving it does not allow people to stand and re-enter into their system under their own merits uh, it doesn't allow people to re rebuild merits and i feel like we're going just and we're just accepting that as a culture we're just saying oh yeah well if you can't sell yourself to someone then you're just going to have to beg from the government and 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 give up those benefits as soon as you can sell your attention to someone i agree but i don't see that as a reason to fear i see that as an unsustainable pattern that will eventually lead to well i guess it is a reason to fear unsustainable pattern that will eventually lead to a breaking point yeah that's I'm, yeah. that's what i'm afraid of see i'm i'm someone on the left who is absolutely who is as much afraid of communism and capitalism as anyone on the right uh, i feel like that's a false dichotomy well it's not totally false because bernie sanders calls himself a socialist and there are a lot of people on the left that are that are amenable to the phraseology of socialism and communism yeah. i'm not one of them uh, i'm very much a capitalist i believe in private property and private enterprise that's the engine of our economy there's no mistaking that and people we want smart people to be disproportionately rewarded for disproportionately rewarding activities we want right. elon musk we want jeff bezos we want amazon those are beautiful examples we want bill gates and microsoft uh, those are beautiful examples of what capitalism does um so we want to protect that. But what we don't want is we don't want masses of people that can't find anyone to sell their attention to. And now they're mocked and laughed at and disregarded and they're going to get pissed off and they're going to burn the whole thing down. <laughs> That's not what we want. We no, don't want that. Right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If you greatest way to keep people invested in society is to bring them into it. Yeah. A thousand percent right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, I think basic income is, is the next best thing to do. What yeah, do you, I'd 100% agree with what that. What do you think? I, could, I don't know. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that I see um, I see the fear in worrying that this kind of breaking point will happen and that the breaking point will go negative. But I also think that it's a lot of hope in how the breaking point could go positive. Um, I was talking to my girlfriend about how, you know, she kind of subscribed to the idea that we're pretty divided. As a country, when you look at the election and everything, it kind of does seem like that. But I really do want to make this point about how it seems like the labor values are super, super uh, transcendent across both party lines and is a thing that will probably bring more people together. What would you say the labor power. values are? How would you describe the labor values? What do you think they are? I think it's a feeling of... Okay, the labor values that I subscribe to are like the $15 minimum wage. Or Across the, the nation? I actually don't subscribe to that. Well, like the concept of a living wage, I guess is a better way to put it. Living wage. Because I think as, as I was, when I was reading... Uh, talks about adjusting for inflation minimum wage across the nation should actually be like 16 or 17 dollars but who so, but who do you think do you think the feds should set a living wage or do you think states should set a living wage in their state how do you think that should work that's a good question i don't know it should probably be on a state level because the cost of living is always obviously going to vary from place to place yeah. but i can also make a great argument for a county level too right like um i think malibu had like a 20 dollar um, minimum wage for anybody working in the city of malibu like three years ago don't quote me on that but it might have been santa monica actually but that city knowing that they were stupid wealthy made sure that everybody inside that town who was hiring people had to pay 20 bucks an hour 
if you were able to buy fucking property in Malibu, Malibu and Santa Monica and rent a business in there, you can probably afford to pay that. So even moving it down to the county level, I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be opposed to. But do you think be... we're divided on those values as a nation? No, no, no. I think that um, the division that we're told that our country has isn't really as prominent as the possible the possibility that labor type values could bring people together mm. um and i think that's where i don't know if you saw on rising if like a month ago or maybe a couple weeks ago they had that interview with bernie where he was talking about a fear of this is the opportunity that the american people might be giving to biden as president to make radical changes in their life that they're looking for and if you don't make those changes then the next trump is going to be worse mm. I think that's a thousand percent right. Like people are hurting and looking for something and those labor values could be that kind of wing that everybody can tuck under. But if nobody strikes that iron, somebody else will. See, I think those are, I think those are common values. Uh, I think that the, I think that the common class, exactly. I think the common class is being, uh, has been depowered. Uh, you know, in that we, the, our government is responsive to us. I'm one of those people who is all for Medicare for all. Uh, I'm all for some sort of nationalized medicine, however you want to do it. So that the point is, I don't want to have to be afraid to go bankrupt if I get sick. That's the point, right? And then the leaders, it's their job to figure out, oh, well, what's the best way to make sure citizens don't go bankrupt if they get sick? And look, industrialized nations around the world have done it. Uh, and it's not like you have to come up with anything to do it. It's just you have to pass it. Um, I saw the other day where Mitch McConnell in his acceptance speech said that he was he was the only leader in the Congress that wasn't from California or New York. And it made me so sad. It made me so sad that that's a badge of pride uh, that wow, you, that you I have to that you that. that you can you can say, oh, well. I'm not from California or New York. And that, and that's, you know, that gets you applause in the heartland. Uh, that's so sad. That's so sad. We're Americans. I'm a, I'm a Southern Californian. I'm just as American as anyone in the heartland. Uh, why, why am I the butt of a joke? Uh, simply because I live on the coast and was born on the coast. I don't feel that way about people in the heartland. I don't think that because you're born in Kentucky, that makes you less of an American. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I feel like that's part of a division or division. I don't like, I don't like that. The, that the conservative, I guess, people, uh, conservatives, seem to have this monopoly on the concept of patriotism, uh, mm-hmm. or at, le- at least the, they have the monopoly on flag imagery, right? Uh, they put a flag everywhere, it's, and I feel like it's going too far. I was watching Kaylee, M- Kaylee McKinney. I don't know how to say her name. McKinney. Pre- I don't know how to say her name. Yeah. yeah. I was watching her give her give a press conference earlier today, and she had three flags behind her four flags and i feel like why do we you know if isn't that kind of what nationalist in a bad way governments have done they've, they've rallied behind patriotism this is what a patriot is this is what the patriot is and i'm not sure that that the patriotism that the flag imagery so heavily the flag imagery uh is is helpful but maybe maybe that's why the people in california suck <laughs> Because <laughs> we because we don't think that that holding up a flag makes you a patriot, right? I, I think that I think that fighting for the common people against the capitalist elite in America makes you a patriot. I think that thinking about ways okay. in which common people could be 
not shuttled into the streets because they don't have skills to sell to someone and not have to be broken homeless because they can't come up with 600 bucks or because they can't collect SSDI. So now they got to go beg. I think that's patriotic uh, and no flag involved, right? Well, that's exactly what Rogan always talks about. He's like, what's more American than wanting to make sure that we're all doing great? Like, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So mm. if we're all on the same team and one person is doing really, really shitty, like, that's kind of the representative of our team. Mm. So I, re- I really do agree with agree with that sentiment because there's nothing more patriotic than wanting to make sure that your fellow Americans live a good life that you can live as well. Did he, he startle you? Yeah, he's back there. He, he heard something outside. <laughs> Oh, Hi, Tupac. Him. Welcome to the show. Hey, Tupac. Thanks for a little uh, shout out there. Yeah. yeah. What do you? What, how would you define patriotism? How would you say you manifest your patriotism? I define patriotism as one's love for their country. Um, the reality is, though, that that can be very, very dangerous as well, like you were talking about with the hyper-nationalist kind of imagery. Because um, I see it as like a relative thing, too, right? If somebody's view of America is that it's a white country, then their patriotism will express themselves of wanting to preserve that. And so I can't necessarily blame, blame patriotism as a source of evil or issues. Mm. I just have to say that it's like the way that it's applied. Just Hyper-nationalism. Like That's a good way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but for me, the way I, the way I kind of feel like I express my patriotism is, uh, I think a love for my fellow American and a love for what my country, what the power my country has bestowed onto me to make, uh, in terms of as an individual within the government right? Like the ability to vote, the ability for free speech, like all of that stuff, right? Like I think that that is as American and celebrating that is extremely patriotic as apple pie or anything else. I think that's what we just saw. I think this this election, we saw a big surge in patriotic support for democracy. Uh, I think that's why people came out. Uh, even if it was support Trump, at least they voted, right? Uh, yeah. At least they voted. And so that we had more votes than than ever is was that the number i don't know how many we had but we had a lot yeah we were averaging like what 50 to 80 million maybe 90 million per election and this Mm. one blew it out to like Mm. 180 million or something like that Mm. i mean those are just ballpark back of the napkin quick off the top of my head numbers but i mean it's significant like there's a lot of people voting yeah yeah a lot of people voted and that reminds me of something that i want to complain about um so I don't know if you've heard, but a lot of Republicans are describing the, what I'm going to describe here, the Democratic Party as the Democrat Party. Uh, And I think that's a very subtle subversion that's happening because, so Republican, the word Republican with a capital R is a proper noun. But if you Mm -hmm. make that R lowercase, it becomes an adjective. A Republican is someone who's going out in support of and in defense of the Republic. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A Democrat um, isn't necessarily Democrat or the name of the party, Democratic, the Democratic Party, when is a pronoun, when it's a capital D. But when you lowercase it, right, Democratic, then it becomes an adjective, just like Republican. Then it becomes an adjective for someone who goes out in support of democracy. And that right. I feel like that 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 was an equivalent conversion that could be performed on on in blue and red for the names of the parties but by calling the 
Democratic Party, the Democrat Party, you're just reducing them to a name. No longer do they have this concept of democraticness inside of them that's that's uh, related to at least linguistically related to the name of their party. Now they're the, the Democrats. Well, they've always been the Democrats, but they're no longer the Democratic Party. And I just I feel like I've been hearing it a lot more, and, and I think it's intentional. I think it's intentional to call the Democratic Party the Democrat Party and not call them the, the, the Democratic Party because that gives them uh, an automatic air of supporting democracy, which is the accu- – so it's a kind of a silent accusation. I think sure, when you call I, the Democratic Party the Democrat Party, you're silently accusing them of not being democratic. I think that it's fair and I agree. I think that since the Reagan era's trickle-down economics, we have definitely labeled Republican with that same kind of – subtle subversion right like republican you think yeah totally like i've never heard it i mean i don't i really feel like the narrative of republicans only caring about business and being a party of the wealthy and being kind of disconnected from the common person i definitely think that that narrative became associated with that adjective of republican Mm. i mean i know that so that's like the phenomenon of which which goes on a lot is that in a lot of people's households, the word black or the adjective black, when talking about black people, is is so often and most of the time used negatively such that when they go out into a group, they don't want to say, oh, he's a black guy because they feel like they're insulting him. Because when they hear mm-hmm. the word black, they, it's so associated with these negative things that they don't even want to say black. But black, it's a color. <laughs> Right, there's nothing negative about it. Uh, as, as in fact, I, I'd rather be black. I'm, yeah, I'd rather be black than than African American. I've never been to Africa. There's nothing African about me except my lineage. <laughs> right? I'm Southern Californian, uh, so I much prefer black guy uh, to African American. And, so, and but so it depends on what's associated with. So I, I had never what I had heard the association with, not with Republican. Uh, to me, that was always a respectful term. Whenever I heard Republican, I thought of Lincoln. I thought of people who fight for the republic. But in my culture, it was conservative. Uh, in my family, it was you say conservative, you're saying crazy. Oh, it's conservative. Oh, that was the end. Of, oh, it's conservative. Oh, therefore it's nuts, right? That was the way they used it, uh, and I I fight against that. I've been fighting against that that knee jerk reaction every day. I still do today. Uh, I've had a lot of conservative friends over the years. Yeah, I think it. Um, I think it speaks to a cultural change in perception. I think that that label of conservative, like I had it as the word Republican, but you had it as the word conservative. Mm. Was exact was essentially a subtle cultural paradigm shift of labeling, as we have a collective consciousness labeling Republicans or conservative that way, mm. based upon some things that we saw as a collective conscious. I think that that's what's happening with the Democrat thing that you're yeah. talking about with Democrats, right? Like yeah. Pelosi done fucked up the way she handled the uh, stimulus. Um, the fact of the matter is that. Democrats have been kind of appealing to this hyper woke moral superiority signaling leftism thing and the communist part that obviously comes with things like Black Lives Matter or defund the police. Like those kinds of things are really rear in their head now and it's causing a big divide in the Democratic Party and it's really kind of starting to show that it's not as the Democratic Party, even though they were ineffective, were always seen as that kind of bulwark to sort of hold steady and fast. And if it was their failure, it was not because they were 
malicious, it was because they were incompetent. And we could always morally forgive incompetence more than we could forgive maliciousness. Mm. Now I think we're really seeing the maliciousness and craziness that comes behind both parties. Ergo, we're starting to use the same kind of adjective to describe, but an adjective that intentionally carries sociological and cultural weight behind it. What do you think we can what do, what do you think we can do to heal uh to heal the divide i think exactly like i said i mean you saw that labor values were incredibly important mm-hmm. along both sides i saw some data and I, I so really you think electing would... electing representatives that go for labor values would salt would serve to heal the divide or at least partly yes massively because but, i think but we have to consider that uh Liberals and conservatives will not vote for the same people. Um, where do I mean, those people come from? Are you have you heard of Brett Weinstein's Unity Twenty Twenty Party? Do you, yeah, and the whole thing about him getting like let go from Twitter and everything yeah. because of that. Oh my god, I was so mad. Yeah, no, I, I I see that, but I look at Bernie and um, his. I'm kind of just regurgitating crystal ball here. Um, Rising was talking about how the latino support for bernie and black support for bernie was pretty damn strong and it seemed like a lot of that support shifted away from bernie onto trump well i I am i am strongly against those breakdowns of uh of groups i think that ryzen's been doing it egregiously the past week it's made me upset a number of times uh, those are terrible. Those are terrible ways to group the voters, and I think it's just. I think we group voters like that because we're lazy, because we don't do the research necessary to find out what people actually think. If if they did the research to ask me, what type of voter am I? I am a blank voter. I'm gonna say I'm a UBI voter. That's how. That's why I'm a UBI voter. So you can categorize the way that I vote. I vote along those lines. Who's closer to an Andrew Yang basic income? Uh, from all the options that I have on my plate, and it's not black; it's not Californian, uh, and they just—and you know—I'm ref- I'm categorized as a black voter because I'm a black guy, and they think that oh, he's a black male voter, therefore he votes on black male issues. Well, that's not true. It's not true in my case, and I don't think it's true in most of the cases. Is it true in your case? Is, do you, do you vote on that on your uh, non-immutable aspects characteristics? I mean, I don't—I don't necessarily think that's fair because well, I don't know. I don't know if that's sort. Not for his right way. I guess I, I do vote on the things that are relevant to me, right? Or I do vote on the things that like matter to me, and the things that are matter are relevant are going to be inevitably influenced by my cultural upbringing and heritage, also my location. So, Trump uh, or Bernie did really well with Latinos in Florida hmm. and Latinos in Arizona. Biden did fine with Latinos in Arizona. Biden do not do fine with Latinos in Trump. Right, like they are. See, I don't. I don't think you. I don't think we can even find meaningful in, information from those breakdowns because we don't. We'd have to go up to the Latino voters and saying, "Why do you vote for Bernie? Why do you vote for Biden? Why do you not vote for Trump or vice versa or whichever mix?" And I think when you ask those well, Latino voters why, they're going to give you the disparate range of answers. Yeah, but I'm kind of going back to, I don't know if you saw Joe Rogan's um, live stream with Kyle Kalinske I on election night. I watched a lot of it, not all of it. Okay, so you saw when they went back to um, when they went back to Trump's last 2012, 2016? Yeah, 2016 campaign um, ad where, did you listen to that by chance? Uh, I probably saw it in 2016. Okay, literally the last 
camp the last ad of like the uh, trump campaign from 2016 was saying stuff like we're gonna bring your factories back we're mm-hmm. gonna have good paying jobs so you can take care of your family mm-hmm. fucking labor stuff okay mm-hmm. six uh Bernie was getting incredible support from those same Latinos that are voting for Trump on labor issues. He was leading with the livable wage. He was leading with Medicare for all, right? Those were his things that he was kind of putting forward at the front of his campaign, not the social justice issues. Mm -hmm. So I see what you're saying about an unfair categorization, but the reality is that this swing between um, demographics, between uh, demographics, Democratic vote and Republican vote shows that people vote on issues more than they vote on identity politics, yes. right? I think that that was one of the big things. Yeah, yeah. So I'm agreeing with you here. Yeah. But that goes to show that we're a lot more united and there's a lot more opportunity to unite than there is to divide. You're saying that um, Democrats and Republicans aren't going to vote for the same people. There is literally Republicans who voted for Trump in Florida who previously were going to vote for Bernie. Like, I really disagree with that statement mm, that they're not going mm. to find the common ground. You see what I'm saying? Like, that fact that those labor things are so popular that people... No, that's, for, that's people. a good point. That's an absolutely true point. Uh, and I think Obama yeah. represented that same thing as well. Like, the Obama-Trump-Bernie, like, trio there has been carrying people who are looking for a change because the life that they had was essentially shrunk out and gone by people selling out the middle class. So I really, I really do think that there is a lot of crossover and opportunity there, and it labor values will essentially be the future. But, 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 if nobody takes that, there's going to be a Trump two point. Can I call those that's... values common values as opposed to labor values? I guess so. Common class, labor class. Because this is it. why this is why I use the phrase common class as opposed to working class, because working by calling someone a member of the working class that implies that is their that it is their intention to sell their attention to someone else in order to eat and i don't think that should be a requirement in order to live and so i rather refer to them as refer to us as the common class uh because we are people who are amongst the commons right we we value the commons we are the resource of the nation it's our attention that is the resource of the nation that everything's so holy on which things so so wholly depend um and if i don't want to sell my attention then i shouldn't have to and i think that makes me a commoner yeah but you're still going to have to work either way even if you're not going to sell your attention to somebody else you're going to do some kind of work by which to live and progress right no so, no that's the point you don't that's the point you don't have to do any work you don't have to do any work see i think people will do work but i don't i don't think people should have to do work to benefit from the dividends of their ancestors yeah i don't know how to tie that one together then no, I mean, but I I think we agree on what the values are. The values yeah. are the the people are still going to vote on jobs because they want they want to work. That that's my point is that they want to work, and they do, and they do, and we do, right? Um, yeah. I, so maybe I, I, yeah. then, like, maybe then that definition of working class kind of speaks to the dignity behind it. I feel like common. I know common shouldn't carry less dignity than working, but to me, it does. Like when someone says you're a commoner, they're kind mm. of saying you're just a commoner. Yes. When someone's saying you're working, 
there's pride and dignity in work that I want to be able to be conveyed. Like, Oh, but the, but the sting of the common is the most beautiful sting, right? The the sting, the sting of the common is the sting of the word precedent. That was an insulting term when they used it. President meant the same thing as shift manager when they used it. And and they said, no, 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 we can't call him the president. That's ridiculous. We have to call him the monarch or the ruler or some other, put out other list of things. President was a lowly term. It wasn't a term fit for uh, the office that it was set to describe. That's what the common is. Yes, I am the rabble. I am the rabble. I guess maybe then I'm just thinking about it from a marketing sense, is that if I want to try to unite people behind a cause, I don't want to label them as common because that kind of labeling that has any kind of negative connotation is a lot of the criticism that the left is receiving for doing this virtue signaling, moral kind of uh, holier-than-thou, right? Like, uh, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so because I think, I think the, the adjective common is inherently uniting. I think it's inherently uniting across the species, right? Because I think that I think that anything that might give people a perception of like it being insulting, it's there will always be some people that take it that way. There will always be some, feel... but I think the common is is a is a more powerful way of referring to the middle class because we you know the middle class was the phrase oh middle class middle class middle class values right, right well the right. middle class is disappearing. It's getting harder and harder to say what's middle class and what isn't. Is it a hundred k? Is it a house? Is it an apartment? Is it is it two houses? Right? What what, what is middle class? That's getting harder and yeah. harder to define. But what what's happening is that as the capitalist elites, which they exist, as they push more and must more of as they separate themselves further and further from us, the common, then we start to pick up this moniker and it starts to gain power. You know, I think there's something to be said for that. You've got a good point there. I kind of want to just take it as purely a, what I thought would be a better term, but the fact of the matter is that you're right. It does, it can and does carry a lot of power. And one of my biggest criticisms of the Democratic Party was that they let the narrative be set to mm. a point by which there was almost no contention. And simply calling the other side a liar and saying you believing that as lies and calling you dumb for that is very dismissive and doesn't go out to try to change the narrative and provide a different sort of way of looking at it. It's Um, so bad. It's so bad that so many uh, liberal talking heads and liberal people for that matter, insist that everything that's Republican is crazy. Every, every voter that's, that's a Republican voter is insane and stupid. And every Republican leader is a liar. That's not true. Uh, That's not true at all. Uh, I like, I like Mitch Romney a lot. I like John Kasich's. I wish, you know, I wish the the Democrats were, were including Bernie more than John Kasich's, but I like John Kasich's. Um, I like, hold on. Wait, you like John Kasich's? I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2016, I, if, if he, I was rooting for him. To come out of the Republican primary, because if he had come out of the primary, I said, you know what? If it's John Kasich versus um, who was 2016, who was the Democratic candidate in 2016? Hillary, Hillary Clinton. I was hoping mm-hmm. for Bernie, of course. But if it was John Kasich versus Bernie, I go, I'm excited. In either case, if it was John versus Bernie, I am excited to stand behind the leader in either case. I like John Kasich. Uh, I, I wish the Overton window weren't shifted so far to the right that he is now this bedfellow with our, with our liberal leader. I don't like that. Right. I would Mm -hmm. like to be ideologically separate 
from John Kasich's, but I like that John Kasich's, I feel like if me and him were talking about the issues, we could come to an agreement. We could come to agree on a set of facts, and it would all rest on civility and professionalism and expertise, and we'd have this understanding about what the world is and where the world should go. Uh, I feel like I, I could come to an agreement, um, but a lot of, there's a lot of, what can I say? There's a lot of conservative, I, I don't know if you want to call it down-home conservative type of thinking, where I just feel like we look at sources of information that are so desperate, where I'm not sure, I, I mean, I hope if I can talk to a common person who, from, you know, the from another state that I would disagree with ideologically, that we would have uh, an agreement. I'm just not as confident. I, I guess I don't get to have that conversation, and I want, I want to lament the the separation of our cultures. I mean, my family's from Georgia. I've got family from Georgia. Uh, I've got family from Indiana. I've got family from Arkansas. And and I had a cousin who actually he was conservative, and we would just go back and forth on Facebook. And he started following me around on Facebook. Where as soon as I would post anything, he he would be the first comment negative against it. And I said, <laughs> dude, I said, dude, you got to stop following me around and just you know posting negative on everything you post. He said, I'll do you one better. And he unfriended me. Uh, and I wish I wish that wasn't the case, but uh, at any, that's uh, that was a long rant to just say that I feel like I feel like I would get along with every common conservative eventually, but I feel like I would get along with John Kasich probably more quickly. Yeah, I can understand that, yeah. and I, I really do think that there's something to be said for that value, like what you said right there. That there's a value in knowing that you can go to somebody, and even if you disagree a lot, that you can come to an understanding. And I really wish that there was some way that we, as a collective, in terms of uh, U.S. voting block or you know U.S. voting electorate, I really hope that we had a better way of communicating that kind of trait or value that somebody has because it's extremely difficult to measure. And if we could measure it and make it, if we could measure it and make it a litmus test for judging somebody, it would be so. Oh my God, it would be so powerful. So yeah, I really, I really wish that maybe there's some day in the future where we can just become more aware of that. Do you think like basic I, income could win in our elections? Do you think? Uh, yeah, guys? totally. You're telling people that you're going to give people money. Hell yeah! Why yeah. wouldn't it? Nice. Giving people weed got popular this year, so oh, all you gotta do weed, is have enough marketing. Weed won. dude. Everything's legal in Oregon. Yeah, yeah, I did see that. That's that's wow. a little interesting. Great, I'm happy for it. De yeah, I'm happy decriminalized for it too. possession, man decriminalized possession there's no reason for it to be criminal you know i'm i'm libertarian in this regard i feel like uh if you want to put something in your body uh, in the privacy of your home have at it don't drink bleach i wish you wouldn't right but if you're gonna if I, I that's not criminal that's not a criminal act uh mm -hmm. heroin crack whatever uh that's not a criminal act uh, i wish you wouldn't do it this is kind of where we start diving into that topic of like accountability that we were talking about earlier mm. and where laws come into place and holding people accountable. I really wish that there were that laws are written in a way where things were either very clearly illegal or very clearly not. And it wasn't to where let me let me let me let me uh, rephrase this. Currently the way I see the law is the law is very dense 
and complex and you just got to really follow 70 to 80 percent of it most of the time and you're going to be fine there's going to be 20 percent that we all kind of agree is bullshit and whatever and the unfortunate part is that 20 percent can really be leveraged against you if the court decides that they want to go after you for whatever reason and you know there's a bit of ambiguity and all that I really, really want laws, and what you said about privacy of your own home made me think about this. I really want laws to come down to that point. If you are high in public on methamphetamine, then it's illegal. But if you are high in the privacy of your own home, locked away on methamphetamine, then it's not. You know what I mean? Because this... But that can't be enforced. Because then you would have to be testing people, and you'd be suspicious, and... Why? It would be totally enforceable. Only when you're in public. But it's so. I w- I don't know that I would be for that because if it's if it's legal for me to get high, so it's so it would be illegal. It would be illegal for me to get high and leave. It would be legal for me to get high at home, but it, but I would be committing a crime by walking outside of my door high. Right, because then you become. I'm using meth as the example of hyperaggression and all yeah. that stuff that happens, then you become more of a danger to society, right? Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I want more, I want laws to be more tangibly um, connected to the harm by which they can impose. And even if they may sound arbitrarily defining being high inside your house or outside your house, I think that when looking at the effect, we can really make a good argument for saying this is where we say yes and this is where we say no. And maybe my bigger argument in all of this is simply getting rid of those bullshit 20% laws that we all don't really follow. That can I don't know what you mean by you. that. What are those? I'm trying to find a concrete example in my head, but I can't. Like, The thing I can think about is if you ever go make um, like a cell phone purchase, right, and you're buying your cell phone, like, they're not going through and making sure that you sign every single x there's like two or three x's that are the really important ones and they circle them for you and everything else if you leave blank it doesn't really matter in my opinion what the fuck is the point in those blank ones yeah they put them there because i need to sign them or they're not needing to be signed and therefore you can just leave them there so having lines on a contract that don't need to be signed but are just there anyways is the way that i equate those kinds of laws that don't necessarily have to be there but they're there anyways. Yeah, but I th- I think that's a feature of society evolving. So, a feature, not a bug. Uh, a, a, a feature, a, a feature in the way of a snake shedding its skin is a feature. So when a snake sheds its skin, there's going to be some shed there, right? So as societies evolve, we're going to have laws on the books that were necessary and enforced in 1900 that are not relevant in 2030. It's just going to happen. And I guess it just leaves a... I don't know. I mean, you would would have a task force to go and figure out which laws aren't being... aren't necessarily applicable and clean them up, but... uh... How loudly can I say fuck yes? <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, how do you pay for those people? You got to pay those people. That's that's not, I don't think that's meaningful work. I was actually thinking about that today, that I think uh, most laws or anything that's going through that has a budget requirement immediately adds 10% of that budget as just an auditing to make sure that it stays on budget. I really do think that we need to start making investments at the time of purchase 
in our auditing and accountability portion of legislation in order to make sure that it doesn't become this problem later down the road. I really feel like the way that politicians do things is they just pass one little portion, knowing that the time bomb is on the other side. And the whole point is to create a fanfare about this portion that's been done and then create a catastrophe about the time bomb that's lurking on the other side to get more of what they need. I really wish that more legislation was written from a place of comprehensiveness and foresight but i guess what i'm also asking for is competency and accountability and the whole reason why we're having huge conversations about our problems with government is because that isn't there yeah yeah no i don't i don't think that's i don't think that's an achievable goal or at least not not from where we stand because the problem with with um, the american one of the problems with the american government is that we're such a large nation and we have a large nation and a constitution that was designed to make the government slow to respond. The, the, the federal government isn't meant to be a quick responder. That's not, right, it's not right. designed to be quick. Uh, you want and, bureaucracy in a sense. Yeah. No, no, no. We don't want bureaucracy. It's just not designed to be quick. It's kind of like if you have a, if you have a tractor that's meant to knock over trees and then you have a sports car, which one are you going to take to go into the city? And which one are you going to take to knock over a tree? It's not your Ferrari, right? They do different things. Uh, and so the federal government is meant to be very forward looking, very slow. It's the Goliath. It's, it's the, it's the uh, Leviathan. It's the big thing, right? That moves slowly and it needs to move with vision way down the road because it doesn't turn quickly that's what the federal government is and so i think what we have in our in our federal government now is a lack of vision they're they're not, they're incompetent and we keep selecting incompetent people andrew yang okay. was on not the ballot you, please pause that thought because i really gotta pee please pause that thought <laughs> you're fine I'll, I'll fill the gap okay back in action all right yeah no you're saying that Yang was on the ballot, and yeah. you're you're kind of saying that like people weren't competent enough to vote for him. No, no, no. That the people we're putting in aren't visionary. So the federal government turns turns very slowly, uh, and the problem is that we are trying as a nation culturally, we're trying to get the federal government to be faster and be more responsive, but it's not built for that, and so that's a bad. Desi- that's bad. Uh, des- des- bad desire on our part, right? We're trying to knock a tree over with the with the with a Corvette, uh, or, or no, we're trying to drive a tractor into the city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what we're doing. So what we need are more responsive local governments. It needs to matter when you're in Los Angeles. It needs to matter who the mayor of Los Angeles is. When you're in town x it needs to matter who the mayor of town x is uh that needs to be very very important and i feel like uh i'm skipping over the states because state governments they do their job but they are also very susceptible uh to the whelms of the wealthy in our states so Mm -hmm. that's that's -hmm. something that's to be aware of as well where the local governments are a little bit more responsive to the populace there uh so we i think we need more city rights let's say uh to use the states rights type argument uh and less I think the federal government needs to do maybe a little bit less than it's currently doing. And so I'm kind of of the of the idea that, look, here's what the feds do. Well, they they run the military and they send out checks. That's what they're good at. Right. (laughs) 
uh, we have an incredible military, and we have incredible, and they and they fund a bunch of stuff. That's basically mm-hmm. all they do. Uh, and so, yeah, just just send us money, keep keep the military strong, and uh, let us do what we do as cities. I don't know. I think I think the federal government has. I think if we were to go just purely on cities, we would dive even more into tribalism. I think that the federal government is the glue and bond that allows us to stay linked and homogeneous as Americans, as homogeneous. Yes, yes. I'm not calling for an abolition. Of course, of course. Uh, But I really do think that the reduction in government down to uh, military and checks. Yeah, yeah, right. So, So how about this? There's a whole department uh, for housing and urban development, right? Ben Carson's the head of that thing. What do they do mm-hmm. other than send checks? What's, what's, what's the most meaningful work they do other than sending money? That's the most meaningful thing they do. I mean, you can look about like zoning and the way that they set zoning parameters. I don't even know what they do. They... Let me see what they do. I mean, but the, like that's the kind of stuff, right? Is that like the federal government could set precedent for how close you build airports to homes, right? Like if each city was able to b- decide that stuff out, like I see what you're saying about checks being maybe the most tangible thing that they can do. But in the way I see the federal government is it sets the sandbox by which we're all going to play in. And if the manager of the sandbox is pretty hands off, it leads to some crazy shit inside the sandbox. So I kind of really That's feel true. like... That's true. No, no, no. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so I kind of feel like the space, the sandbox that is being architected is very, very important. I forget and what our original what, what was the original complaint couched in. What was your original complaint? Uh, I think it might have been like with the ineffectiveness of government, right? That's what we're going on to about competency and asking that they be more accountable and all that stuff. I think that's kind of where Acca- this all stemmed uh, from. Yeah, kind of us uh, accountability in terms of the vote, right? Where if we don't like what you do, we vote you out for somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But not only vote you out for somebody else, they're very vocal, like. I really feel like I should have done this sooner, but I have called Katie Porter once every two or three months ever since she's gotten elected just to give my feedback on some stuff that I see. Your house representative? Yeah, it's my house representative. I think your house representative too. No, you and Costa Mesa are in a different one. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I had a I had never really done that before, Mm. and I'm like, oh shit! Like I'm now like able to voice my you know, the way I feel to mm-hmm. my representative mm-hmm. and the representative really has to appeal to me because there's not many people in my district. So this is a good way to like push for what I want. And I really feel like if that was more of the attitude that a lot more Americans took, we could hold our government a lot more accountable, make it a lot more representative. I think another big complaint that people have. I don't, against know. I don't it, think that's the, see, I don't think that's what's preventing them from being responsive to us. Uh, the fact well, that we don't engage them enough. I think what's preventing them from being responsive to us is the fact that their campaigns and their reelection doesn't depend only partially depends on the vote. It more depends on how much money they can get. That's the number one thing, right? So their <laughs> their reelection depends on what wealthy people or or super PACs or whatever they can get money from in order to fund their reelection campaigns. That's what their position depends on most, and that's what they spend most of their time. Um, trying to please, right? Try to please this pack and please the party and make sure the party's happy with you. Make sure the pack's happy with you. That's why they can't just fight for our local municipalities because they don't get money from us. They need our votes, so they need to talk the talk that we like. 
but they can't get their talk to us unless they get money from other people. So that they have to talk to talk that they like. And I think there's an imbalance there. I think they should maybe get money from us. And so I'm, I think democracy dollars will be a good solution here. Uh, if there was the, if the feds just gave everybody, uh, let's say a hundred dollars a year or $200 a year, or uh, some number, right? Some number amount of money that every citizen could then give to, or had to give to a campaign. Otherwise you don't get it right. It's, it's not like money you can get in your pocket. You have to give it to a campaign. Then I think people would, then the, our representatives, they're, re-election campaigns would much more heavily depend not just on getting our votes but also getting our money and then they would be more responsive because they didn't then they don't have to go to the the capitalist elite to get their dollars as much but but the whole purpose that the money serves is to aid you in your marketing campaign that's what elections are right is how Uh well can i get my message out and market out so i need to pay advertising slots i need Uh to pay for ad buys i need to pay for humans to go out and physically spread my message Mm -hmm. What if we had an electorate that actively tried to find the news themselves or actively tried to understand what the representative is doing so that there is no need to go to out and knock on doors and say, hey, this person's running. We could have just already known. Oh, yeah, I got in my I'm just using an example of some sort of idealized um image i have in my head not necessarily the way i think it should go oh yeah i got an email from um democrats last week saying that these are the people that are going to be running next month i already know you know what i mean you didn't have to come on my door and knock to let me know that they're running does that make sense like it does it, but i don't think it i don't think it's going to happen only because you're talking about 300 plus million people uh as opposed to i don't know the couple thousand that are in the government but this is where I get down to what I was saying earlier about maybe it's not necessarily education or some sort of large change that's going to create the or some sort of large institutional um, pivoting of the battleship, so to say, um, in order to create the change that we want in our electorate. Maybe it's just the injection of time into the electorate will allow them to become more involved. Look what happened when we gave people time with COVID. Mm. Look how many more people started turning up to vote. Right. So and this is a time when Biden was spending some of the least in terms of canvassing and stuff like that. Yeah, he still made a shit ton of money on the thing. I'm not about to go into the election funding for Biden. But my point is, is that the reason why campaigns are so expensive is because it costs money for people to get their word and message out. If we had a more politically active electorate then it wouldn't cost as much money to put these messages in front of eyeballs because those eyeballs would already be looking for it but you can't you can't model you can't model your solution on if a hundred million people behave differently there's just there's no way to get that to happen i think we can because like i was saying look what happened when we injected covid into the populace a hundred million people acted differently if we were looking at 90 million people voting yeah, but we didn't that was now, that's a bug we didn't do that that's a that's a why virus. not that's a virus that did that that's mother nature <laughs> that's mother nature that did that yeah, okay, she sorry, reared sorry. her yeah, head yeah, yeah. and said you people get in line and we did and we will and so every time there's a tornado typhoon earthquake disease plague yeah 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 we'll react to that but as far as putting ideas out into the zeitgeist and i mean this is this is what um this is what James Buchanan did with 
his radical version of radical libertarian he said you know what my ideas are better and so he drew on some ideas that weren't very popular and he made them as philosophically sound as he could and he said i'm gonna find some some schools that will let me teach some minds and that's what he did he taught young people his ideas and then they taught others and then they taught others and so i think the plan that you're talking about about increasing civic engagement on the side of the populace is a plan about education that you could perpetrate or and get others to perpetrate by teaching young minds uh, and then those minds will teach others and those minds will teach others going down across a generation and James Buchanan he's dead and he's really now starting to see the effect of, of his political uh, research but we had a huge change in civic engagement engagement with the injection of time I think like COVID as a pandemic maybe it might have been a pressure mm-hmm. as well but we've had we're having like climate change we're having um, I agree now what like, do you think so- would give people time more than basic income no 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 I, yes okay of course we're going to basic income and yeah. time will be one of those benefits what i'm saying is that you were saying that education was the way by which we plant these seeds into the populace and then begin producing the results mm-hmm. i disagree i think if we do small changes to society like giving people more daily time to choose the way that they spend their attention they will inevitably look for things that are going to make their lives better just like yeah. you're talking about the inevitable thing that people will work for ubi ergo COVID has given people more time. We've had a lot more people show up and vote this time. I'm with you Maybe, on that. Four-day work yeah, week, right? Kind of. Whatever Whatever. it may be, not time specifically. What I'm more so saying is that James Buchanan's method – did I say his name correctly? Uh-huh. James Buchanan's method of teaching young minds to produce the results that he wanted was his method of what the electorate needed to be injected with to start creating change. In this case, we saw that the electorate really just needed to be given a little bit of time to kind of take a breather, and they would start to change. So I, I'm not saying that time is the solution. I'm not saying education is the solution. I'm saying that relative education is a lot more of an invested solution than time is. And so maybe there are other – and time still produced tangible good results for civic engage, engagement. So maybe there are other low-resource, low – uh lift kind of injections that we can make into the electorate that will produce these positive results that we well, want time isn't low resource or low lift time is high resource high lift time is yeah time's a big deal mm, i don't know i feel like there are a lot of ways where we could simplify the amount of time that people spend on things i, I really really do i feel like bureaucracy what paperwork, what, what what simple lift would give people more time daylight savings <laughs> i mean you can okay, make come your, on, dude, you can make that your, was funny you can make that your clock whatever you want <laughs> i don't know man i haven't gotten that far i think basic income i think that's the best way to time because uh, it would give people yeah, time. I, yeah i agree that basic income is is uh is the best way to productive time i just wonder if there are other low lift smaller injections that we can make i just don't know what they are you you understand that there's at least do you, do you feel as though that at least there's a merit in what i'm saying and that the difference of lift between injecting time versus injecting education if time is a heavy lift then education is a two-ton massive lift right yeah 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 no i don't disagree with that I'm yeah sure. yeah so no. that, that that's kind of the point i'm making they're both that, heavy lifts uh yes i don't, I don't see relatively... any light lifts uh because I don't see time as a light. I don't see. I don't see the the lightest lift. Basic income might be the lightest lift that I can see, and it's not a light lift, but it might be the lightest 
that I can see because it's already on the docket. It's already got movement. We already have people around it. It's an old idea, and it's a sound. Wouldn't healthcare idea. be lighter? Wouldn't healthcare be? We already have a Medicare for all infrastructure built in. Why they aren't separate? We it. can't. It's not one or the other. Well, you were saying about which one time or UBI healthcare doesn't or give me time. Why not? Do you know how much time my mom has to spend calling Medicare, calling the nurses, making sure to coordinate the care, double checking with the pharmacist? Like, yeah, if there but... was a more efficient system for unifying the care that a person was going to experience, they would spend less time working through the Medicare system and they would have more. Yeah, but we're talking about, I mean, so this year I have spent probably, I don't know. 10 hours, 10 to 15 hours, if you add them up, reading and learning and performing all of my necessary healthcare provisions. And that's with our rotten system. I mean, I shouldn't call it rotten. I've got nice healthcare through my job. That's with our current system. Um, but you're a pretty healthy person, right? Like, you're not getting any kind of surgeries. You're not getting any kind of risk consistent care. No. You know what I mean? Like, and that's what I'm saying is that, like, as a collective, right? If you look at the amount of hours just wasted in that sector in general. So which regardless. do you think which do you think we could get? I'm for both. I'm for Medicare for all and I'm for basic income. Which, yeah, I which think Medicare for all would be a lighter lift for sure. Is a lighter lift? Yeah. Politically? Yeah, I, you know what? I'll, I'll give you that only because it's already lifted. <laughs> what is it, 70%? You've heard the stats. Same stats yeah. that I have. Then most people are already for it. It's already lifted. There's only We've only got a, a handful of leaders, that's, leaders that say, oh, no, can't do that, can't do that. Um, so, you know, yeah, that, that lift has been mostly been made. So that is a lighter lift, but we don't get as much time as basic income. The time injection, no, no. uh, for basic income would be, would be much, much greater. But I wonder if there are just small little lifts, not small, little, relatively speaking compared to vast. Hey, but like, we're, but we're doing it right. Uh, are you, I think you're trying to think for stuff that maybe is not already being done. Um, kind of new ideas. Mm, sure. I don't have any yeah. new idea. I want basic income, man. So it, I want it so bad. For me, the the idea is, or the trouble is, we need to be an interplanetary species. We need to be on Mars. We need to be in international space stations. We need to be working on becoming a level one society and harnessing the power of our sun, building a Dyson sphere. Right. We need to be on this track uh, as a species. I argue for this, but we cannot get there. If people are not free to invest their best energies into the things in which they're interested, that's how we get a return from a human being. So you invest in a human being energy and resources in terms of the food they eat, right? We're, we're investing in them. And that person needs to, uh, I heard this the other day, consumption as debt. I had never thought of this idea. This was from Brett Weinstein. Uh, he said, every time you consume something, you need to look at that as a debt to society that you just enacted because you consumed something. Um, but that goes to the level of like driving on the road or living in your home. Right? Yes, everything. Everything is a debt. Everything, Every action that you perform. Uh, as long as you're sucking air, you are incurring a debt to society, and that's a healthy way to look at it. And so yeah. we are investing in people, and we need the most out of them uh, in order to maximize our, our return on investment. And in order to do that, they need to be free 
to engage in the things that they are actually interested in for all of their time. That's how we maximize the investment. If you got somebody who's really excited about playing Minecraft and they really hate doing QA testing, well, if they're going to be a QA tester instead of a Minecraft streamer, they're going to be a B minus QA tester and an A plus Minecraft streamer. So you're going to get right. more out of them if they're doing the thing that they want to do and they would live on less, they would eat less, they would make sacrifices to do that thing that they want to do rather than have more resources, have a bigger house, have a bigger car, all because they have to make up for the fact that they're doing something they hate. Uh, no, you're hundred percent right. You're hundred percent right. I think though that specific argument is unfortunately dependent on an individual feeling a sense of purpose from a pretty young age which they right, will have could... with freedom that's what freedom does freedom gives you purpose uh... bro you just kicked off the next two hours of our podcast right there with that. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough <laughs> yeah that's that's a whole nother tumble rabbit hole I don't know but and we'll do it. We will do it. Uh, maybe not this evening. Uh, let's see. I mean, we could talk for a long, for a long, long time. We're coming up on approaching three hours. Uh, so I Damn. appreciate your 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 stopping by virtually. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And what would you like to say to the one, maybe two people that will listen to this? Um. Keep thinking. Um, I there's a podcast called Ologies that I started listening to a little while back, and it's okay. It's a little cheesy and corny, but one of the things that I really like they took from it is ask smart people dumb questions, and I really liked that because we as people are all smart and dumb in certain things. So sometimes we can be the dumb person asking the questions, and sometimes we can be the smart person giving the answer, and. It can be simul not simultaneously, but it can happen very, very quickly. And so I think we all have something to teach each other. And I want people to kind of remember that and keep thinking. I agree. Thank you for doing this, Evan. Dude, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Let's do it again. We will. All right. Talk to you later, Kari. Talk to you later.